Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel, Mormonism with the Murph, where we do a fair and objective analysis of the church and its truth claims, its history, doctrine and policy. And I'm really excited for this interview I have with me on my channel, uh, Stephen Pinecker of Mormon Book Review. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on. Oh man, this is so cool, man. Um, thank you so much for having me on. You know, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago or a week and a half or so ago, and I was like, dude, you know, I, I, I'm rooting for you. Like I was right where you were at a little over a year ago. And I feel, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with the guests you're booking. I'm, in, I'm impressed that you are um, with your journey that you're on, which we talked about when I interviewed you. And I just think that, you know, you're kind of Northern Ireland's uh, Steve Pinecker, although you're a member of the church. And I'm like, um, you know, I, I want I want, I want, to see this work. So I, I'm excited to be on your program. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. No, so uh, one thing I have to say about Stephen Pinecker is he, he reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and really kindly said, you know, I'm curious about your your channel. Let's let's have a, a chat. And uh, you, out of I think the kindness of your heart, you you've empathized. You're like I was where you were about a year ago. Uh, you know, I want to try to help promote your channel, which was really nice of you as well. And it's been really fun just to get to know each other more. So he did an interview with me on his channel, more in book reviews. Uh, so if you want to go and watch that, you can. If you want to learn a little bit more about me and my sort of faith journey and why I started my my channel uh his channel as well it's a great uh youtube channel and a podcast he not only talks about the church and its history but all the different branches or movements of the restoration mm -hmm. and you get on a lot of people lots of really amazing historians scholars critics you know apologists not just with our church but you know, with different branches and even christianity and religion some mm -hmm. people have not even heard of uh and that's been going i think really well you've got what over two thousand subscribers yeah just crossed over 2300 the other day and uh it's just been a you know pretty consistent growth about five to ten new subscribers a day i like that the channel is not i mean it's exploding in its own way but you know if i i'd be overwhelmed if it was twenty thousand subscribers this quick so i feel like the slow mm -hmm. but steady growth um has really m made it manageable for me yeah <laughs> you've not been given more than you can handle exactly yeah that's right uh, and um so before we dive in uh to your story we're going to definitely talk about his his podcast mormon book reviews we're going to be talking about his his faith journey he was also in mormon stories he had a, an epic interview with john delin so we're going to talk a lot about that that's whenever i first uh sort of noticed or encountered you you know i, I was listening to mormon stories and it was an amazing five-part interview yeah. uh five episodes monday through friday a full week of mormon stories that's pretty that doesn't happen is, is that how long you were there or was that no it aired monday through friday that's so we did we filmed over two days but it was like five episodes like almost 12 hours and then when it was released he literally released like sometimes he'll release like if he has multiple interviews he'll release both the interviews or three in the same day for me he was like nope the whole week of mormon stories can, can you imagine that a year after i start the channel I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the Joe Rogan of Mormon podcasts, you know, I mean, it's pretty crazy. And it, it was awesome. So if you, if you haven't seen his Mormon stories interview, I would definitely recommend it for me. I not just saying this, I thought it was one of the most interesting interviews of your faith journey. Like you said, I felt like there were some connections I made to you, even though that you're identified as an evangelical Christian. Yeah. And mm -hmm. just when I thought, you know, your story couldn't get even more excited in the final episode, you dropped a bomb that I was just like, this is definitely the best interview. Nobody can top it. But we're going to talk more about your interview yeah. later on. Um, mm -hmm. 
So hopefully this will be really good. But for anyone who doesn't know uh, anything about you, who, who is this guy, tell us a little bit about your background. So where where did you grow up? Talk to us okay. about you know, school, where you went huh? to university, and also what it was like growing up as an evangelical Christian, and anything about your faith or any spiritual experiences uh, that are relevant as well. Uh, if you okay. talk about that. Okay, so I think like, and I've, and of course I've told my story on Mormon stories, but I'm going to tell it to you too because I think it's 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 just an interesting story, and people always ask like, like what what like how how in the world is this evangelical decide that they're going to do this channel about Mormonism? Yeah, and I think you know, uh, let's see here. Oh yeah, okay. So I got this. This is the Book of Mormon now. Um, approximately i think it's probably about 1980 i'm around seven years old is that when you and i go to a marriott hotel we're staying with my parents my parents take us to a marriott hotel and i come across the book of mormon and i see these paintings the freiburg paintings dude oh yeah and i'm a little boy and i'm seeing war i'm seeing action and these two i think they're back to back they're very stunning because then i see the war and then i see jesus returning during the new testament see that looked like the second coming in in the old testament type days right mm -hmm. so i'm like what is this so this right what's going on here so my my parents what's that you said this was at a hotel and you were seven yeah marriott hotel because the marriott's that they always had a gideon bible and a book of mormon all all hotels in america basically have a, a gideon bible and then and then and then uh, and if you're in utah maybe they have a book of mormon but it, all marriott hotels and they give actually give you access to all the holy scriptures uh, throughout the world they're available. Um, but the two that they have in the hotel room are those two here, at least here are stateside. So I um, go to my parents like, what is this? And I said, well, that's another group. That's another Bible. We don't use that. Um, you know, and just kind of gave me a superficial, you know, thing about what, what, what Mormon is. But then, but I was interested because then as a little kid on the, on channel 38 in Chicago, like the largest Christian television station in the country, they air the God makers. So I'm seeing God makers in the early eighties when it's come out on TV. Right. And so now all my exposure is all anti stuff. You know, it's all evangelical. It's all anti. And then I attended a Christian school and we're on a basketball tournament. And this is the very first book of my collection. I stole this from a Marriott hotel. And uh, this has been with me since the early nineties. So now we're talking like, dude, like 30 years. It's this okay. is my first book. You were so as I, you're before the age of accountability. And <laughs> no, this is <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so then I just uh, I start in my early twenties. So probably around the time I'm attending college is when I start accumulating um, my collection. I uh, okay, just so yeah. You know, I, so I, I attended a Christian high school. I attended a, a college uh, where I, I was a poli sci guy, and then I was ended up being a department head in the city of Hammond, Indiana. Uh, which is border Chicago. So I'm born just outside of Chicago. And I was a department head. So here I am. I can't, I'm still in my early, early, I'm not even 25 yet. And I'm a department head for the Department of Weights and Measures in the city of Hammond, Indiana. It's a political appointee, by the way, because I was involved in politics. I did political consulting. I ran a congressional campaign when I was 20 years old. So I have in Lake County, Indiana, okay, is just outside of Chicago, okay? Now, Lake County, Indiana really is more like part of Chicago than it is part of the state of Indiana. So it's a machine politics, just like in Cook County, Illinois, which is notorious for like corruption. And you say it had the same type of corrupt political system that I grew up in. And so I maneuvered myself in that world. 
And so like even somebody said, man, you're really entering a minefield in this Mormon thing. And I said, look, I cut my teeth on Lake County, Indiana politics, going against the political machine as a kid that wasn't, couldn't even buy beer yet. So I, so I, I, I know politics. I know how this all works. So that kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but that was preparing me for, I think this, where I'm at now, you know, because it is a minefield when you enter into this world. Yeah. So I, um, I'm attending a weights and measures conference in Portland, Oregon. Now, because I'm not 25 yet, I cannot rent a car. So within walking distance, I'm in downtown Portland within walking distance of the hotel where the conference is at. There's Powell's Bookstore, which is at the time, I don't know if it still is, but it was the world's largest bookstore. And because it's we're in the West Coast of the United States, they have a very large section about Mormonism. So basically, whenever there were any breaks or, you know, be, in, during the conference or the, it was over, I'd run over it, walk over there. And uh, I would just park myself in front of there and just consume everything I could, go through the books. I was like a kid in a candy store. So then one of the days I was there, I run into this kid who's probably around my age. Maybe, yeah, I think he was around my age. And he had just converted to Mormonism. Yeah, he's like in his mid-20s. Yeah. And he had just converted to Mormonism. I'm like, okay. Because at this point, I'm a young Calvinist, charismatic Calvinist, who thinks he knows everything. Oh, it's a, it's a terrible combination, by the way. <laughs> and uh, briefly, what a Calvinist is for some listeners, they may not know sure. the difference between. Yeah, they might just think Protestant. What's the right. difference between a Calvinist and? Of course, you being in Northern Ireland, you know the Presbyterian. The Presbyterianism is a, is a form of Calvinism. Um, I come from my heritage is Dutch Reformed Christian Reformed Church, which is a, a historically one of the most important Calvinist denominations period like in america but even worldwide because they're the ones that came up with the niv bible they're the ones that initiated the program for the niv they're most almost all your christian book publishers are based out of western michigan uh, all dutch so a very influential small denomination but highly influential so i uh, generationally i call i go i i i trace um people from the reformation era there was actually like a minor reform reformer, leader in the Reformation movement in Holland that had the last name Pinecker. So it goes back to like hundreds of years. So I come from this long line of Dutch Calvinists. Well, my parents get involved in the charismatic renewal movement. Now, what is a Calvinist? Okay, well, they believe in the the tulip, uh, you know, uh, which is total depravity. I could go through it, but it's basically everything's predestined. You really have no say in the matter. Uh, God's God is sovereign. He's in control. Um, basically, and we're just kind of playing out this kind of like this this prescripted drama that's already been written. You have no say. You really have no choice. Everything's been predetermined. And uh, basically, um, let's just put let, let me just be blunt here. All right. In their worldview, it was God's will that Anne Frank be caught and die in a concentration camp. And it was God's will that one of those guards at the concentration camp, who is a professing Christian, right, um, that it, that he's predestined for heaven. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. And guess what? That's called God's love. And that's essentially Calvinism. And then let's talk about the Holocaust. The Holocaust was God's will. They were all predestined to be put, thrown into those gas chambers and be burned. And not only the smoke that came from those smokestacks, that that represents God's love. 
because that's like an incense to him because God is sovereign and whatever you have coming to you, you deserve. I mean, that's, that's, that's Calvinism. Like it's the worst representation. I usually like to steel man my arguments, not straw man. But really when it all comes down to brass tacks, that's why I had to leave Christianity in one sense, because that God, that, that version of God in my sense, now look, I'm talking really hyper Calvinists here. There are people who are reformed, who are good people, who are Calvinists that, that would maybe they understand. All right. So I'm, I'm really going after the ones that just take it to its logical extreme. Yeah. So I'm not attacking Calvinists in general, just, just, just some of the ugly, uglier aspects. If you just kind of follow down that road, like, oh yeah, that's the problem. So I know for me, whenever I was investigating Christianity and I was listening to a lot of different ministers and pastors and I was listening to Jeff Durbin, that yeah. was probably one of my biggest issues was I remember going to uh, a Christian service and the, the minister talking about God's sovereign, that he's already pre-chosen who's saved and who's not, and that all things have been predetermined. And to me, all the big issues I had with, with Mormonism, nothing seemed worse than a God who's already predestined, who's going to hell and yep. who's already saved. And to me, that was, and not to attack anyone's belief, but for me, that was something I found really difficult to accept and understand. How could he be a loving, just God, right. but yet hold to this, this view? Yeah. And that's the thing. See, this is how I look at it, is that there is very there's I don't see any difference between the God of the atheists and the God of Calvinism. They're the same. They're the same character, in my mind. Um, so when atheists argue against God, they're basically uh, they're attacking the God of Calvinism. See that because because and so that's the issue that you have. And so like I tell people, it's like a lot of these, and see what happens is what ends up happening is a lot of these. If you go on YouTube, and you see a lot of these young YouTubers who are atheists. Many of them came from reformed Calvinist background and they just kind of took, they're just basically taking all the arguments and, and just basically using the same template that Calvinists use, but now they're using it as atheists. You know, I tell, I tell people, one of the jokes I make is I used to be a Calvinist and then I found Jesus, <laughs> but I also say I used to be a Calvinist, but I, I'm not a Calvinist anymore, but I still think like one. If that makes any sense, like I try to be rational, and because there's there's some there's some intellectual qualities to Calvinism that I find admirable. It is, it does, it, it is quite logical, um, and so it, I can see how somebody could fall into that trap where just you you kind of create this little bubble that now everything makes sense. You're able to put everything in a box, like well, this is your station in life. This is I'm a white male who lives in North America, and this is the place that God put me in this place of privilege. And, and, and so then it leads, leads to arrogance. Um, it leads to uh, misogyny because many of them are very much, uh, um, you know, very much about keeping women in their place because that's the natural order of things. So just all these fall into place. And it's just kind of it's like, argh. and it leads to. Or um, as well, isn't it? That, you know. Well, yeah. So, oh, that's a, yeah. So scriptura. Yeah. And that's, again, I'm not trying to attack. I'm just, but I wanted to talk to you. So this is yeah. just, you know, and just experience. kind of giving my views. And so, yeah, so this is the world I'm in, you know, so I'm in the Calvinistic world and I do kind of view things through that prism. Like I've been predestined. I'm one God, one of God's elect. And so I, I feel like I can win a debate with anybody. And so I'm sitting here at this bookstore in Portland, Oregon with a newly, a new convert. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to run circles around this guy. Two hours later, 
I'm like, I'm at a standstill. Like, I can't get through this guy. All the arguments I thought were good were garbage. Why? Because I was using the arguments the Christian apologists had come up with Mormonism. And then that's when I realized, I would realize a few years later when I started, because I never really delved with atheism and, and all, and, and Christian apologetics. And when I realized was when I said, okay, I'm going to study Christian apologetics, apologetics and really have a ready answer. I felt like I haven't really engaged atheism. I didn't know anything about it. I'm going to engage it. Once I start reading their materials, I'm like, oh, this isn't good. This is not about defending the faith to the world. This is about keeping people in the church. And then I realized that when I was going up against this Mormon, this wasn't really about me having a conversation. It was about me. It was just saying, well, we're going to say all these bad things about Mormonism so that you stay in the church. So these weren't solid arguments. And this guy who's just a recent convert, I was like, I can't th get through to him at all. And I feel I was embarrassed. So then that's what was the catalyst, because I thought I knew about a bunch of Mormons, where I threw myself into Mormonism and said, I'm going to study this big time. I'm going to know, I want to know more because I'm, and next time I'm not losing that argument. See, Calvinist, if you, you don't lose arguments. And if you do, you're going to make sure that the next time you do it, you're going to win. That's the mind. That's the mentality. Okay. okay. So that's really kind of what got me really spurred me was I thought I knew and I didn't know. So I thought I better start reading. So then now this is like, we're going into the late nineties, early, early two thousands, where I really start delving into really, really studying it and start reading the scholarly stuff, whatever I get my hands on, whatever books I could buy, whatever books I could check out of the library. And this is still Christian time for me, right? Mm -hmm. So I just start building this collection. And that's really like the impetus for um, me, me starting the channel. Well, the, the, I mean, of course, I had no idea I was going to start a channel. As a matter of fact, I was like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Well, part of the originally was the, was to win that argument. I just didn't, I didn't like that. And of course, I studied other religions. I'm I'm interested in a multitude of subjects. I mean, I could probably do like five different YouTube channels on completely different things because I'm just an inquisitive person who likes to read a lot. I don't know. Uh, so that's kind of where I got started in this journey was that argument that I couldn't win. And it taught me something. Okay. So did you feel when you grew up uh, evangelical Christian um, I assume you would have been reading the Bible, you would have went to church, would have prayed. Did you feel that you had some sort of a born-again experience? Did you feel yes. like you had a personal uh, relationship with Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about your personal faith? Yeah, so basically I was just a young child, probably about four or five years old. I don't think I was even in kindergarten. And I would have done what would be saying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus Christ in my heart, you know, I'm a sinner. And so that would be my born-again experience. So basically I was raised in a Christian home. I came to my mom, I want to get saved. So that's what happens. Came to my mom crying, you know, wanting Jesus to get saved. And then uh, would later get baptized a few years later. And then um, I, I don't remember the chronology exactly, but in fourth grade, I, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit where I had hands laid on me and I started speaking in tongues. And then I fell to the ground. I was slain in the spirit is the vernacular that we use in our tradition. And so just so you know, folks, my parents got involved in the charismatic renewal movement in the 60s. That was a big deal back then, before I was born. So I was born into a world that was still steeped in Calvinism, but it they had since left the church and became charismatic. As a matter of fact, they kind of, they they suffered like being isolated from the community because it's a tight-knit community, the Dutch Reformed, Christian Reformed community. And so they had to kind of start over in their world and they got involved in charismatic stuff. So... So that's the world I'm in. So I, I speak I, I, I speak in tongues, just the one time, the initial evidence of tongues uh, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, 
scriptural within the context of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> How old were you when you had this? Um, fourth grade. Like four, fourth grade. So this would have been. Um, what 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 age would I have been? I would have been uh, probably nine or ten, I think, okay. right around that age. Yeah. So so that experience really kept me going into my early twenties. Like that was like for me, it was like my faith was so strong, and that I felt the Creator of the universe touch me, and uttered tongues out of me. That there was no argument that you could make that was would would um, change my mind, affect my testimony at all because I experienced the creator of the universe touching me, you know, that was how it felt. Like I literally felt this outside force hit me wow. and it, it was really a remarkable experience that I had. Imagine being like nine or 10 years old and having that and the profound effect that would have on you. Right. You know? Wow. And, uh, so and probably most, um, Latter-day Saints, you know, an experience at a Pentecostal church and evangelical charismatic, it's probably very different. In some ways, the service to if you go to like a Latter Day Saint service, could you talk about maybe maybe some of the similarities and differences between like a church service between like a Latter Day Saint church service or a charismatic service or yeah yeah between like oh okay hardly similar hardly different okay this is this is what's so fascinating to me all right was um so I and we'll get back to because of course my I got it. We'll continue the chronology, but I, I, I like this. Uh, we'll take this little side route here. Is um, the very first church that I ever visited in the Restoration was the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bickertonite organization based that they go. That's what the terms used as out from outsiders, like they use Brighamite for Mormons and stuff like that. And I go to this church service. I introduce my. I actually, uh, uh, I. I they were contacted. They were told that I was coming. So the people, this was last May, not this May, the May before. And the people watched my videos. Now, I only had like four or five, right? But the people in the church watched my channel. And so when I get there, they knew already knew who I was. So this church is about 90 minutes away from my home. And dude, I was, uh, I was floored. So this church, this is this is this group came out of the ashes of the, of the church that Sidney Rigdon tried to start up in Western Pennsylvania. Okay, and William Bickerton basically was their prophet. So he reorganized the church in 1860, although they they were doing service church before that. And they this is what they have: they have the Bible, they have the Book of Mormon, they have Jesus, and they have the priesthood, and that's it. They don't have any of the doctrines and covenants. They don't have anything of the stuff that was added on. So I tell people the the kind of the accepted date, although it's in dispute. April 6, 1830, was the date that the Church of Christ, the Church of Christ <laughs> was founded. And I tell you, if you want to go to an April 6, 1830 service, you got to visit that church. And so I was touched, and I felt the Holy Spirit. I felt that these are genuine Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, no doubt. And I had to, I ended up taking my mom to a service. Now, my mom has discernment. She knows what's real. She knows the real deal. From the fake, she knows what a counterfeit looks like. She said, "Steve, I felt the spirit." So then I take two Christian brothers from this Christian community I live in in Florida. I took them to a Saturday night preaching service there. Now, these are Christians. Now, you ask me what are the similarities. So a few weeks later, I attend a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints service in Lehigh, Utah. And what was similar? The, the services were actually very similarly structured. Um. 
it, it, it felt like they were following like almost the same playbook about how they conducted their services. Mm. Now, what was so fascinating about the Church of Jesus Christ is, is basically their church is basically modeled after what is taught in the Book of Mormon. So nobody knows who's going to give the sermon that morning. They don't know what songs they're going to sing. They have a structure, like an outline, but they feel like the Holy Spirit fills it in as the service progresses, which kind of sounds like what the Book of Mormon kind of says how your service would go. So they have, and then they have this testimony time. People keep up 45 minutes, nonstop, people standing up giving testimonies of Jesus. Okay. So this is like powerful stuff, man. I'm like, whoa. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah. If this is the church that existed on April 6, 1830, I get it now. Yeah. Like as an evangelical, as a spirit-filled born-again Christian, I'm like, okay, I'm having church service and the Holy Spirit's here. This is the thing. This is what's so weird. So then I go to the Lehi, uh, the branch of Lehi, and it's it's like it was just so um quiet. I've never been in a church service where people like sung the hymns it, like almost just barely above a whisper. It was so quiet. I remember the joke I always tell people. I like, look around. I'm in, in this church. I was like, boy, these people could use a cup of coffee. <laughs> and it was just, it was, it, to me, as a charismatic, now I'm not criticizing. I'm not criticizing. But it was just, it just, it just didn't, it didn't have the energy that the Church of Jesus Christ had. So I had this really remarkable, interesting thing where I go and I say, I visited an April 6, 1830 church. And then I visited a 2022 or 2021 church service in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was like, okay, now I, I kind of get, I everything was patterned similarly, but it was a completely different experience. Now, hey, John DeLynn says he prefers his services to be more like that, to be irreverent and quiet. And I get that. I'm not criticizing the way the church did their services. I'm just telling you what I experienced in that in the Church of Jesus Christ was, I was like, okay, now, now it, I felt at home. I really felt at home in that church. I felt like I was a stranger in the other service. There's probably so, a lot of similarities to yeah. Pentecostal, Pentecostal yeah. services. Yeah, people, they're speaking, I've, I've witnessed, they're speaking in tongues. Yeah. You know, there's, they, 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 they laying on of hands for healing. Uh, you know, of course, they do that in Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints too, but anointing with oil, um, the spontaneity, like somebody's, they're doing a service, okay, let's sing hymn 151. You know, and they sing hymn 151. Um, there's a there's a hymnal I have, and this is one of the most remarkable stories ever. It's called the Songs of Zion. This is a this this well I can't actually there's an announcement I don't know if it's official so I can't announce the status of this. So basically, um, this is one of the hymnals that the church uses. Now I was first told about this hymnal when I was talking to. Uh, Patrick McKay, who's affiliated with the Independent Restoration Movement in Independence, Missouri. And he told me about this, and this is when the Holy Spirit entered into the whole process of the channel, was because he started telling me about this woman who in the 70s was sitting at her kitchen table, doesn't know any music, can't carry a tune, and she's sitting at the kitchen table with her children, and all of a sudden this song, the words and the melodies... And the rhythm, everything was downloaded into her. And so she literally had, to, she didn't know anything about music, but she had perfect memory of the song. He's telling me the story. I'm like, okay, I've, I've 
this is interesting because as a charismatic i'm i'm like okay i'm, I'm digging this man and uh she she she's like okay like and so, so somebody sits at the piano and they hammer it out and she has a song and she goes everybody look everybody i have this song i think this holy spirit inspired me with this song well next thing you know she gets another song downloaded and another song to now 239 hymns done in this remarkable way that i've never heard and guess what there's number 240 they're hoping to have ready eventually She's since passed on. Her name was Arlene Buffington. And it's one of the most, and let me tell you something, folks. This woman didn't know anything about music. It's some of the most beautiful hymns I've ever heard is the Songs of Zion. And that's with their church. So, so like, this is like, and I had other Christians go through this hymn book, and they're like, this, this is good. Like, was they're this, blessed and edified. Was this the Church of Jesus Christ? Church of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So this is how, that's why it just, to me, like that, that, but see, that's important. I think it's important for folks to realize, like, as a charismatic Christian, this is the third largest church in the Restoration. They have around 25,000 members, and they love the Book of Mormon, and they love Jesus. And that really resonated with me on a very, it was, um, I just, I felt like I was, I, I found a home almost, you know, and this is a Book of Mormon believing church, man. So for me, I love those people. They're my folk. And uh, I'm honored and privileged to, to be affiliated with them. As a matter of fact, the daughter who I had on my program, and we talked about this, she reached out to me. She said, I'm writing the history of this, the Songs of Zion, and I'm going to write you into the history of, of, this, of this hymnal. You're part of the history of our church now. Wow. So, so cool. That's yeah, so that's cool. that's when it gets real, dude. Wow. That so cool. yeah, that that's that's to me like so now I see I see the same type of service. Uh, in, in, I can see the context now. I understand it now. I get now what it's what it was in 1830 and what it is now in 2021. Yes, because when it started, when the church was first restored, it wasn't as structured. You know, uh, they'd be speaking in tongues and. It seemed to be a lot more by the spirit, whereas now, yeah, if you go to a Sunday service, half the people are either sleeping or on their phone. It can be a bit quiet and subdued. And yeah, I think John's right that we would see that as, oh, well, that's being reverent, you know, that's being yeah. respectful. You know, you have to be quiet to, to hear the spirit. Um, but interesting that your visit to that church, very similar to your Pentecostal church, which would have probably been more similar to when the church was first absolutely and that's where i think i tell people there's two places that we can have the conversation with my world and the restoration two places we can have that conversation in that april 6 1830 church service and we can have that conversation within the pages of the book of mormon because there ain't nothing in the book of mormon that i really have a problem with i i could the whole adam fell thing okay that's a little but other than that uh book of mormon is uh thoroughly christian book thoroughly yeah. protestant book a thoroughly pentecostal book yeah give me an example my good friend christopher thomas a pentecostal reads the book of mormon he's with the maxwell institute he's with the uh book of mormon studies association so like their main book of mormon scholarly group is headed by a pentecostal this is the very first book that i reviewed and he found that there is so much pentecostal doctrine that 
that predates Azusa Street, which is acknowledged as the modern start of the Pentecostal movement, circa 1906, although there were things happening before. And then there was, of course, there were revivals happening in Wales, uh, uh, Pentecostal stuff happening around the same time, okay? So what was thought to be for fully formed Pentecostal doctrine that would later be part of the Church of God, the Assemblies of God, that would be unique to Christianity, like new doctrines? Well, guess what? Those doctrines were already taught in the Book of Mormon. Wow. So that gives you pause. Like, oh, that's interesting. So we got this great Pentecostal book written almost 100 years before the Pentecostal movement starts. Wow. And, and Christopher Thomas... Is that Christopher Thomas you said? Is that yeah, Dr. Christopher Thomas? Yep. Was he on Mormon Stories? Yeah, he's been on Mormon Stories and he's been on my program. It was his episode that kind of, and we're, we got to get back to how oh, my journey. So we'll talk about Christopher Thomas later in the conversation. Okay, so going back to where we left off in the chronology. So you had this friend who, uh, you know, he was around the same age, mid 20s. He just yeah. joined the church you're having these discussions. Uh, I presume it was probably about things to do with some of you know, LDS doctrine and talking about God and maybe even uh, predestination versus agency. I can imagine those sorts of conversations. So then you went on this deep dive to investigate Mormonism. Was your motives to debunk him? Was your motives mm. to find out more about the religion? And did you ever spiritually ponder or, you know, consider you know could this be true is joseph smith the prophet did you ever try Mormonized promise or was it more of an intellectual pursuit and trying to debunk your mormon friend yeah so it's interesting because like uh yeah it was more intellectual um there's what i tried to do was i didn't want to read any um faithful stuff or anti-stuff i really tried to go down the middle and focus on the scholarly stuff right okay and so that's where, what I did. And I did the exact same thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses because um, I had a bunch of friends who were ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I know Jehovah's Witness pretty good too. I'm a little rusty though. It's been a while. Mm. And um, I, I just wanted to kind of like, no, I was like, I don't really want to go with the anti because I recognize that that's, that that's just polemics. And I also know the faithful stuff. Well, I know what faithful looks like. And, and it's always, evangelicals whitewash stuff all the time too. So I wasn't too interested in getting a whitewashed version of things. So I just wanted what is a scholarly consensus, all right? So I read Bushman, I read Brody, I read all the books. I mean, I mean, I got this bookshelf, I read, I mean, it's shocking the stuff that I've read and it's amazing that I'm talking to these people, but so I, I, so I have all these books and I'm reading them. And if you watch uh, when I talk about what I love about Mormonism on Mormon stories, I actually talk about how I'm reading Brody, I'm reading uh, Rough Stone, and I'm liking this Joseph guy on a personal level. I resonate with him because there's a lot of similarities be between him and I. I mean, there's a lot of Joseph Smith that I parallel with. And there's, and I, because I remember even as a little boy, and I, and I talked about this before, but even as a little boy, I'm looking around and I'm seeing like, there's an attack on Christianity. There's an attack on the Bible. It seems like there's no revival and that there's something really terribly wrong in this world. And I remember thinking, we need a Bible, a second Bible another Bible for our time. Wow. And then when I hear about this young farm boy who engages another Bible, <laughs> whether he made it up or he encountered ancient scripture, that's a matter of faith. But to me, it was like, oh, yeah. So now I can see how, like, 
one could see the need for another Bible because I saw the need for another Bible, that our Bibles were too ancient and that they weren't addressing the concerns of our day. And so then here's this another Bible that comes up and, and addresses the concerns of the day. So now when I grew up, I used to get into arguments with people about infant baptism. That was that, you know, we would get in arguments. I believe in believer's baptism. I, my Reformed buddies believe in infant baptism. We get into these big arguments. Well, now you got a scripture that settles it, <laughs> right? So, so to me, it's like, I, I felt like an affinity for Joseph, um, the boy, probably when I was a boy, a little bit, although there's a lot of anti-stuff. And then I felt an affinity for Joseph because I could see and understand where he was coming from. I believe that Joseph Smith had what one would call a born-again experience. That was the first vision. Similar I don't know. Vogel. Yeah, that, that's Dan Vogel. Yeah, now some people talk about different dates and all this and say, okay, let's say there's something happened when he's 14 years old. I think something happened to him, just like it happened to you, as you talked about, as we alluded to in, in our my interview with you. And I can see everything about Joseph Smith makes a lot more sense if he's a sincere, believing Christian. Everything that happens afterwards actually makes more sense than if he's a con man, in my mind. No, I think I would agree with that as well, because there would be a lot of um, sort of people who are against the church, critics or Christians who could sort of attack Mormonism, who would just have the you, Joseph Smith, as just a deceiver, a false mm -hmm. prophet. A charlatan and it's very interesting that you're reading uh these books like you know no man knows my history rough stone ruling and you're having this uh this understanding this connection with joseph and you're also having this nuanced view of him even if you don't believe he's a prop you can you can resonate with him that's so interesting yeah dude and that's that's the thing like i'm 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 engaging him via the biographies and this is the thing Brody gets Joseph wrong. Brody assumes he's a con man. I look at Joseph and say, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't get it, Fawn. I love your book, but that's one of the fatal errors of the book is that it just assumes he was doing the con the whole time. This was a long con. No, -uh, no. Mm -mm. He was a believer, man. I really, he was a believer. And if you read the letters he wrote to Emma, like when he's in out east, and he's just talking about the wretchedness and the sinfulness and how he wants to bring souls to Christ. In his letter, personal letters, he's writing to Emma. You know, this is not a con man. I think this is a man who had a heart for the Native Americans. He said, man, you have a heritage. You have a, 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 a great heritage. You are the chosen people. And you need to reclaim. And we're going to help you reclaim your status as a great and mighty people. And... Yeah, that's that's like radical thinking for that time. So so I think he has a heart for the Native Americans. He's seen what's being done to him. Don't you realize these are God's people and that they're going to play a role in the end of days? Right? Man, this is this is a man who, whether it's inspiration, whether I don't I don't I'm just saying this is what I see. I see a guy who had a heart for souls. He had a heart for the Native Americans in a unique way. Now there's a lot of racism and all. We can talk all about that. But he was also a man of his times. But in one sense, like, who who in the world decides that that they're going to, I don't know, maybe up the status? Because back then it was almost thought like there were Christians who built those mounds and they were wiped out. But he did something. He was saying, like, well, actually, these are also, these are people who are tied in with that same group. Now, they're, you know, of course, we have the two groups and the Lamanites and the Nephites and stuff like that. But essentially, they're, they're all, they're all, um, 
you know, they're they're all related to Nephi. They come from they came there. That's their project. That's that's their background. So they are essentially are, you know, and I don't know. I just and then I look at just the accessibility of him as a human being. Um, I would have wrestled through, uh, with him. You know, he liked to wrestle with people. <laughs> um, he had a he had a he, he had a vi vitality about him as a person um, that I like. Now, 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 you got to keep this in mind. There's a few things here because people are going to bring up. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Fourteen year old marrying a fourteen year old. Well, I'm a male. I didn't quite ever see. I assumed actually what a lot of people assumed was fourteen year olds got married regularly by older men that they matured much older. They were much older. You like because it was much rougher on the in the wilderness and that and, and society was in general like you had to grow up fast. So I kind of thought, okay, I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it as like, well, a 14-year-old then would have been more like a maybe a 19 or 20-year-old today. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I thought about it now since I've done so so that's how I was looking at Joseph at the time, right? So now I understand the complications now that we know certain things. I get that now, but I just want to put that out there. So I, I I kind of put that on the shelf. Said okay, now this in him, you know, this whole thing was it would be like an older woman. And that's how I looked at it. So that didn't that wasn't something that would have been a red flag or would have bothered me. Um, so I don't know. I just I just found him to be a very compelling person. I really resonated with him. I have a lot of similar, like I tell people when I read Bushman and Joseph Smith and says something like somebody brings up something to Joseph and he said, I, that's exactly what I would have done. Or that's what I would have said. So I, I, I felt like, I don't know, there's, a, there's, there's just something there that, that resonates with me. I'm not trying to make this a praise to the man episode, but that's just kind of how I see him. <laughs> which, which is ironic coming from an evangelical Christian who right. should be hating on Joseph Smith. But it's, it's interesting because I would, whenever I left, I would have just thought, um, no, just a deceiver, liar, con man, everything, everything's just a lie. But whenever you read his scriptures, when you read the history, when you read the things that he said and like the letters, he, he comes across like he's sincere. And I think that's why Dan Vogel has this pious fraud theory. You know, he doesn't believe he was a prophet, but he believes that Joseph was a sincere believer and, uh, that he believed also that he was inspired uh, in whatever way you, you believe that to be. Yeah, and keep this in mind, Dan Vogel doesn't believe that any of the Old Testament people were prophets either. Yes, he's, right, in the he's, sense... He's a naturalist. Yeah, he's a naturalist. Yeah. So, so and this is the other thing, too, is like, folks, like, well, they point out the character of Joseph. I'm like, well, <laughs> David literally died with his sex slaves in bed with him. And he wrote the Psalms, and he was the apple of God's eye. Uh, Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines, not thousands. And he wrote some of the most beautiful poetry ever written in scripture. Unfortunately, I, Joseph didn't care for it. I think that's a big mistake on his part. <laughs> but um, so you have men who wrote scripture who I look at and, and then I look at, and then the whole issue of multiple wives. Well, I mean, Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs, they practice it. So I don't, so when, when people bring up all the, like the shortcomings of Joseph, I'm like, man, I, that's not a deal breaker for me because I can find parallels in my own scriptures yeah. of flawed men who were used by God. And to me, that's to me, that makes more sense. Like if I'm if I'm trying to encounter Joseph Smith and I'm gonna steal man, see I the big thing I do is I steal man. I don't like the straw man. I wanna I wanna build up the best arguments because I think that's the best way to encounter it. So I'm like, okay, well, if Joseph Smith was a prophet, what should I expect? 
right? Or if I just take make certain assumptions. And as I as I parallel Joseph, I I can find so many parallels between my own the, the characters that are held up as being great people. Like, I mean, dude, look at Martin Luther, man. That guy went crazy at the end, was doing anti-Semitic rat ram ramblings. But that doesn't take away from the 95 theses. Right. So I just think that as we know that and that's what's so interesting about the Bible is it does present it's that's one of the things about the authenticity of the Bible is that it presents its characters as flawed individuals. It doesn't try to give you a whitewashed history of these people, like how great of a man of God Abraham was. Like, no, he was a scoundrel <laughs> and uh, he could be, you know, he's a liar. You know, there's so many different things about Abraham and then David and all these guys, problematic people, man. So I'm like, OK, so you're going to attack Joseph Smith. Yeah. And then you're going to say, you're going to quote from the Psalms, like, yeah, no, makes sense to me. So, and I think, um, one thing that a lot of members struggle with is where we've been brought up to only see Joseph Smith is next to Jesus in terms of righteousness. And we're told this very whitewashed, uh, history, but, but really, you know, he, he was imperfect. Even if he was a prophet, he still made plenty of mistakes. He was human. And like you said, even the prophets in the Bible uh, were definitely had their flaws as well. So moving on next in, in your story. I, I'm, ha I'm having fun, by the way. This I'm is great. I'm having fun too. This is really good. So you're now studying and you're reading more like scholarly books mm -hmm. about Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Is this what late 20s going into your 30s? So yeah, so this has been, yeah, like, oh, well, I would have been... Well, this is, yeah, this would probably been about mid twenties when I'm really, really engaging. Like I'd done my, I thought I did my homework. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't even doing more of this in one one you know, I mean, I was doing preschool. So I just delved into it because I just found it interesting and see, this is the other thing too. So now we're entering this time period where I, uh, there's personal things happening in my life too, which we're, we'll get into uh, at some point. Mm -hmm. Cause you would ask me and I'm like, yeah, 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 please. So I, I'm actually, I've suffered from depression most of my life since like I was probably around 13, severe, severe depression. And so I've, I've been, I've been dealing with depression since I was in middle school or junior high, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I really had some really traumatic things happen to me. Um, so I had like a really bad thing happen to me with politics um, in particular with that job I had with the city that got really ugly. And so that kind of burned me out. So I got out of politics for a while and then I went to work for Borders bookstore. And so I was the periodicals manager for, for them. And of course I had access to all these books and then I could use my employee discount to buy a lot of these books, which was nice. And so that was, a, I love books. I mean, that's, I spent all my free time in bookstores and libraries. So I get that job and I'm, uh, and it enables me to like, I even had, uh, I, I ordered Sunstone. I carried Sunstone's magazine <laughs> at, our, at the bookstore. Nobody ever bought a copy, but I, I, I ordered it so I could read it <laughs> and uh, during my lunch break and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's early two thousands where I'm in uh, late nineties, early two thousands. Okay. So that's the borders. I think I got, went to work for them in 99 after I um, left my city job. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then I, I worked there for a few years, actually ran a congressional campaign shortly for a little while, moved out of the area to do that, moved back in, 
couldn't figure out what the heck I was going to be doing. So I ended up, I had an opportunity to take a job as a car salesman um, near the South side of Chicago, Calumet city, Illinois. For those of you, that's the home of the blues brothers. For those of you who've watched the film. So Calumet city, Illinois, it's on the South side near the South side of Chicago. And uh, folks, um, I was pretty good at it. I didn't sell a lot of cars, but I was, I, I made a good commission on my sales. And, uh, and, and, and that was another, see, that's another training ground. See, if you can sell so cars in the South side of Chicago, you can sell cars anywhere because you're dealing with this huge demographic of people from very, very wealthy to very poor. You're, you know, you're from, you're near some of the poorest neighborhoods in the country and you're near some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the country, all within like a 10 mile radius. Yeah. Um, and so you have that mixture of clientele of customers, a lot of, a lot of Mexicans, a lot of uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, blue collar people, uh, wealthy people. So you're doing this cross section of diff dealing with different people. And one of the things I got really good with was I could, I could sell a car to anybody. I didn't care who your background was, rich or poor, black or white. I mean, even the, the African-American salesman, they'd be looking at me, how in the world are you able to sell to, like you do, you, you sell better than I do. Like, you know, that, 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 there was a little jealousy. You know, that's how they, but they, res they saw that. Like, because, you know, in Northwest Indiana, Chicagoland is one of, is still one of the most segregated regions in the country. So everybody's like, like the Dutch are one ethnic group. You have the Irish, you have the uh, Italians, you have the Greeks, you have every, the Serbians and Croatians. I mean, look, there, there would be soccer matches going on between Serbia and Croatia at the where the Chicago fire play and they'd have fights break out like the old the, you know the old battles from the old countries still go on in northwest indiana because that's you have people that are really identified with their ethnic group so it's a it's it's really a fascinating world to grow up in and so and it's still that way i think it, it i actually it's still that way and and so it's highly segregated everybody's kind of aware of their ethnicity and so that was what gave me an advantage because basically everybody all the car salesmen basically just sold to their people, essentially. Okay. And I was able to sell to everybody. And that taught me a lot of but that the politics helped with that because you know when you're when you're out there, because I ran for office, you got to be able to appeal to people. So it was a, a developing those social skills to be able to reach out to anybody from any background and not prejudge them. And I can see the links to your channel. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, and so like, if you get this, like, because, and this is the thing that many of them were very, and it doesn't matter what their background was, many of them were very, very biased mm -hmm. against certain groups of people. Everybody had them. And I recognize in one sense, that was my niche. I was like, well, wait a second. I can, I don't, I'm not just selling the white people, man. I'm selling the Mexicans. I'm selling the black people. I'm selling the, the LGBTQ people. Because again, back then, if a queer person walked in that store there, I'd be the only one to greet them. Okay, that's a, that's the kind of world that uh, I grew in, grew up in, and so um, and it was a highly misogynistic place. The women there were treated so terribly. I mean, it was like it was like the 1950s. I, I literally like worked at a place that was like in the 1950s. So weird. Wow. And so yeah, so I, I do the car sales for a while, and then um, around the mid 2000s, man, um, I ended up leaving that job, took another job that uh, at another car place. That but that ended up being a disaster kind of had like a, I was in the process of having a breakdown as I was leaving the first job. And then I was going to see therapy and I was kind of getting a little better. And then I was getting better. And then that second job happened and that, that fell apart. And then I just spiraled and uh, basically just because it was the first time I was ever fired. And that was a great blow to me. So it, um, it really affected me, but I spiraled. 
And I was out partying every night. I was out drinking, uh, shutting down bars. You know, where I'm from, the bars shut down at 2 a.m. in the morning. But then there's unincorporated areas that where their bars stay open until 4 a.m. So sometimes we'd shut down the bars at 2 a.m. And then we'd all head out to the bar that stayed open until 4 a.m. Yeah. So I was drinking a lot. I was sleeping around. Um, I was really just in a bad place. And I was hanging out with a bunch of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who are dealing with their issues um, that are similar to a lot of people who leave the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, depression, substance abuse, uh, drug abuse, so at all. Uh, and, and and you know what? Honestly, I've been in touch with some of them, and, and they're still there, man. Matter of fact, I just found out a good friend of mine, him and I were buds. He was the very first Jehovah's Witness that I hung out with. He was a difficult person, but I had a strong personality. He had a strong personality. I can handle type A's. I can handle, you know, bullies. I don't care. I can handle. Hmm. And this guy, uh, I just found out uh, earlier this year or last year that um, a few years ago, he was beaten to death with a baseball bat in front of his house with a drug deal gone bad. And this was a friend of mine. So he never got out of it, man. He never was able to recover from the trauma of leaving the one true church, wow. the church, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their mind. And then, and then, and they're still, they're all, I, 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 so that was the group I hung out with. Now I never got into drugs. I smoked pot a little bit, but I didn't like the way that affected me. So I mainly just drank a lot of beer and, and, you know, whiskey and whatever. Where was and uh, so that I was self-medicating. Sorry, um, sorry to interrupt. Where, oh no problem. Where were you in sort of like your faith at this time? Were you still? Um, well, that's that's so interesting. So even at this time, I'm at the bars, and see, this is what was so fascinating was I knew Jehovah's Witnesses a lot because then as I'm engaging my Jehovah's Witness friends, then I really I knew a little bit about, but then I really delved into it. So I did a similar thing with Jehovah's Witnesses that I did with the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints. And studied it. And at the point where my buddy, who thought he was like the smartest man in the room, he, he kind of was an intimidating bully type. He goes to me and he's like, the only way you could know more about this is if you were a member of the church. I mean, you, you're telling me stuff I've never heard of, which of course that is a, that sounds familiar. That's like a prelude, right? Yeah, to yeah. what I would be doing later on. So that's why I think this, this is all building up to something, but I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. Right. But now as I look back, I'm starting to put the pieces together. Right. So now I'm still believe. I remember, see, I'm the kind of guy, we, we'd hang out with the bartenders. We would party with the bartenders. We'd go to the bartender's house and party. Well, that's how tight you're, because you know, you're in that age group where you're in your 20s. The bartenders are in their 20s. They're all the same age. I, I would go to a bar and drink all night and have a tab for $5. So most of my drinks were comped. It was really oh, wow. kind of cool, you know? So, but I remember there's this bartender. She had this boyfriend from Holland that she met online or whatever. And she's introducing everybody in her, in her living room to him. And she tells a little bit about each person. And she goes to me and she said, and Steve, Steve Pinecker, he said, he is one of the most spiritual Christian people I've ever met. And this is where I'm boozing along, partying, sleeping around. I would, to her, I was one of the most authentically Christian people she'd ever met. So in one sense, yeah, I still have my faith, man. I'd have these Jehovah's Witnesses hanging at the bar. And see, this is the interesting about Jehovah's Witnesses in general, is that they're one of the few groups that came out of the 19th century that doesn't have a prohibition on drinking. So I would be hanging out with my posse of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, and regular Jehovah's Witnesses would come in, and they would do these expeditions where they're trying to, they like, they know they hang out at the bar, so they have these their friends who are, who are, who are sitting at the bar trying to get them to come back into the faith. 
so then I get to hone my debating skills because I'm like, okay, guys, let me go out of here because I would get in arguments with them myself. And I even remember going to one of them and said, well, what about the Mormons? Oh, well, I did a study about the Mormons and it's just, and you know, I, I did the research and there's just no way that could be true. And I'm like, okay, but you're a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> How much research have you done about your own church, right? Um, so it was like, it was fascinating to me engaging these people, but also what was interesting because you're dealing with the one side where you got the axes and then you have the actual members coming into the bars trying to get them back into church. Imagine the conversations that you're having at the bar. This ain't just especially talking about sports. Of, oh, yeah. Drinks in you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, um, in one sense, I'm a lot like Christopher Hitchens in that way, is that Christopher Hitchens could drink all night long and still have clarity of thought, still able to have a I mean, Even people would tell me, like, you'd be drinking. It's like, I can't tell that you're drunk, Steve. So I was able to always keep my keep my sorts you know about me i could i could still engage in an intellectual conversation talk about theology talk about these things and 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 have 15 20 beers in me <laughs> i mean it was just it was something i was capable and able to do so like when i read christopher hitchens like yeah that's me you know i could do the same thing and one of the, one of my favorite lines that christopher hitchens ever said was i don't drink to be interesting i drink so you'll be interesting. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how I looked at it, too. Like, sometimes I would do that, you know, that just just so that the person would be more interesting to me is like, well, they'll be more interesting when I get a few drinks in me. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's. <laughs> so. I, uh, yeah, that's the, I saw us hanging out with the ex Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of substance abuse going on. I'm still believing on God and I'm actually still, if in one sense, defending the faith, um, working on trying to get Jehovah's Witnesses to, but then at this point, I'm almost like, I can't, there's no church I could recommend to these people. Cause I kind of see at this point, I'm no longer going to church because I'm sick and tired of all the BS that was going on in the church. Um, so I walked away from going to church services, but I didn't walk away from being a Christian. I just felt like attending church was just a waste of my time. And did did you feel any uh, deep down guilt or or anything about sort of like the lifestyle that you were leading at this time, still having those beliefs in in God and in Christianity? Did you feel well? Like I would have I would have still been or conflict. Well, I would have considered myself a Calvinist at the time. Oh, okay. So I'm so one of his elect. Yeah, yeah, and and really honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, I knew I knew it wasn't good that I was out drinking all the time, right? I did. I knew that wasn't a good thing, but and I knew that it was, you know, in one sense, it, it, it's it's. I didn't necessarily think of it as being a sin as much as I just thought of it as being. Uh, I was I was doing something that wasn't. Well, I look at it this way, like you know, the Bible talks way, way, way more about what you eat, what food you eat, and yet we have an, ob an obesity epidemic in the Christian church, and they don't talk anything about that. But then they're going to go after other people with life, their lifestyles. Mm. I'm like type two, B, type two diabetes is a lifestyle disease, because <laughs> yeah. you, you know that's and and so it's like you know so I, I always was bothered by that like well you are you going to eat all this garbage because I was like into health and nutrition and stuff like that but then you're going to go after somebody for drinking or smoking that don't make any sense no. you know to me so I I saw the hypocrisy I'm like okay you know I'll judge uh, I'll you. I won't judge you. You don't judge me because if, if I'm drinking and smoking and you're eating and you're killing yourself the same way I'm killing myself in one sense, I, I, you have no standing as far as I'm concerned to, to, uh, to judge me. So that's how I would have looked at it. Okay. No, makes total sense. So 
when did you go in your faith journey from, you know, you're kind of like having this lifestyle, you're still believing in God, but you kind of went through a bit of a spiral uh, with your mental health and such. How did it then go to you losing your faith in God, in, in Christianity? Uh, what, what caused you to then lose your faith? So as I'm doing all my other research on Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, I realized I had this blind spot. I was taught young earth creationism in school. I really didn't understand Darwinian evolution. I didn't understand science very well, and I didn't know a lick about atheism. So when I engaged, as I was saying earlier, I was engaging these apologetics materials and realizing, oh, this, this ain't working. This is not going to convince an atheist of anything. So I thought, okay, I need to study atheism. I need to study science. So I literally delved into atheism and science like I did Mormonism. Consumed, and this was right around the time of the rise of the new atheism and Darwin, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and um, the Dennett. And I'm just reading this stuff, and I'm reading the science stuff, man. And I'm like... I, I, I was like, I was starting to accept, okay, maybe not, okay, I'm seeing it. And they're making a very compelling case to me. And then I read, uh, I finally, I talked about this in Mormon stories where I was reading um, a letter to a Christian nation book. And I'm trying, the author escapes me. Um, but, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. But, um, and I'm reading it and he comes across this, this statement where, he says, because I was like looking at like the idea of progressive Christianity. Um, maybe, maybe I could go that direction. And he says, and for those of you who want to do your whole going to church and you're wearing your silly vestments and you're pretending and you really don't believe any of this because you're progressive or whatever, he kind of just really decided get over it just forget it just walk away from all that nonsense because in his mind sam harris wrote the book the, it was the progressive christians that were giving cover to all the fundamentalist religions of the world the progressive religions give cover and legitimacy to the fundamentalist religions their their segment right so you have progressive christianity you have fundamentalist christianity you have progressive muslims not uh, you know as individuals and you have you know fundamentalists and so in his mind it actually, they were doing more harm than good. So when I had that aha, like, oh, then I, I literally lost my faith. Like, at that moment, I gave up on anything of holding on to any vestige of Christianity. And then I became like a really hardcore, angry atheist. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's where I had that moment. And then that's when I finally, like, I was getting to it. So I get arguments with my mom all the time. I really don't have a relationship with my father. And one day I just go to her and she's like, I finally said, you know what? She's like, you're angry with God. You're angry with God. And I said, listen, how can I be at angry at some at something that doesn't exist? You know, that's how I renounced to her that I that I no longer believe in God. Right. And so, wow. and doing the whole atheist thing for a long time, suffering from depression. Now I don't have a safety net anymore. Yeah. This is it. And so I had suicidal ideation, um, maybe just ending my life. So I had suicidal thoughts. And there was a phase where I was experiencing that. And then I just had deep, dark depression where I was like, okay, I'm going to commit a slow suicide. 
So I cut off myself from all my family and friends, isolated myself from everybody I knew. And my, my, my whole going into that was because I was like, I'm going to die eventually, whether I kill myself or I'm just found homeless on the side of a road dead. But I want this to be a long time later so that none of my family and friends will be as affected by my death as if they do it while they still just saw me a week before or six months before, because then there's the guilt, like, oh, I could have done something. I, I wanted to relieve them of any sense of responsibility for me taking my life. And so I thought I will do a slow suicide. Oh, you, wow. um, so, so that was my mindset, but this is the weird thing. And I talked about this before too, is I didn't want to die. I just knew that it'll probably end up, you know, like you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't like I was planning a slow suicide, but I thought that's where it was going. So that's why I wanted to have it. But the only thing that was keeping me alive, so I've lost interest in everything else. So I'm interested in so many different subjects, but I lose interest in everything except well, my sports teams, my Chicago sports teams. So Chicago talk radio, <laughs> sports talk radio really helped me, but also Mormonism. Yeah. I remember that from your interview, you said Mormonism in a sense saved, saved my life. life. It did because it was the only thing that kept my interest. And I knew, and it was the only thing that kept my interest as reading. And I knew I was a reader, so I had to keep reading. So I just threw myself into Mormonism even big time, this time as an atheist. <laughs> And whenever you first lost your faith and went atheist, you know, you shared at the start that you felt like you had a spiritual experience, you know, as, as a young child. What did you, how did you reconcile that experience when you lost your faith? What, how did you interpret um, mm. your spiritual experience? Well, I just, I, you know, I studied a lot of science, neuroscience, psychology. I recognize that a lot of the experiences that people have are one, very subjective, and two, are uh, almost universally um, experienced, which would be within outside of the purview of Christianity. Um, all different religions. It, yeah. And so I, I recognize like, and then, so I was like, okay, now I see it. Like, and then, you know what? I just remember like they, because I experienced spiritual euphoria in the charismatic context, you know, feeling this really peace, powerful presence of God. And then I'm reading, um, they're interviewing these suicide bombers in um, Palestinian suicide bombers who failed. Their vest didn't blow up. And they're asked, what did it feel like to go and press that button? What, what was, what we, and, and almost all of them say, I felt this euphoria. I felt this great spiritual surging going through me. It's almost like their last act that they're going to do, it's almost like they have this almost like this deep, profound spiritual feeling yeah. as they're about ready to murder people. So I was like, see, then I'm like, you know, because when people would tell me their experiences, I said, what about the, the, the suicide bomber? He had the same feelings too. Yeah. So that's why I'm very careful about the subjective experiences even now. Because I just think of those suicide bombers who felt like they were probably one with God. Yeah. Uh, and there's a video I watched soon after I left the church. Um, I can't remember who it was by. It was all these different people from different religions claiming to have had some sort of spiritual experience or God telling them their religion is right. And towards the end, there were some really uh, high uh, extreme cults 
where some of the people even took their lives and they did it because they felt so strongly and in a similar way i thought well that just shows you can't it's subjective you can't trust your spiritual experience it's led some people this way some that way and to do crazy yeah. terrible things and it's and it's one thing to die for your religion it's quite another to kill for your religion yeah Oh my God. But to have that feeling that you're doing some the will of God, yeah. Wow. So that's that just should give you pause. That still gives me pause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it it should cause people in any faith and religion to consider more carefully their spiritual experiences and to reflect on them. And you know, really, it's good to think critically about them as well. You know, we we've, we've, we've been given a critical brain. So it was what during what a ten-year, twelve-year period that you were uh, pretty much a full-blown atheist, but you were still reading Mormon books. Were you listening to podcasts at this time as well? Well, so during this whole period of time, so probably around two thousand eight, when um, YouTube becomes very accessible, uh, I start watching. I think I, the very first person I started watching was Sean McCraney's Heart of the Matter, <laughs> um, and I've, I've been to his church. So I've, I've talked to Sean. And um, that was the very first thing I started watching. And then I'm doing watching all this Heart of the Matter stuff. And I think that then leads me into Mormon stories. And then um, I'm one of those people that starts going down the rabbit hole, read, watches a lot of Mormonism. Now, I'm one of those people who probably was one of Rick Bennett's 150, 200 first subscribers when he's doing Gospel Tangents. Now he's got over 5,000. But he... He was another guy. So every single night I have this Roku device and I have YouTube on it and I have it hooked up to my television and my TV time is nine o'clock at night. That's when I'm, I'm watching YouTube videos about Mormonism. Almost every single night, Mormon stories, gospel tangents, and then what other, whatever else I can find. I mean, I'm finding guys that have 25, 30 subscribers and I'm watching their stuff. So I consume, so just what I was doing with, with the Mormonism reading and stuff, now my television programming becomes watching stuff on YouTube. And then I come in across Rod Meldrum and I'm watching Rod Meldrum stuff and I'm like, oh, and it was so fascinating. See, I tell people I went to, I went the exact opposite direction everybody else goes. I went from reading, doing anti stuff to scholarly to faithful. That's the order I went. So I become a fanboy Rob Meldrum. No way. I'm a Heartlander in one sense. <laughs> and I love Rod. And then, of course, then I have, he has this interesting guy on named Jonathan Neville. And Rod's kind of like a goofy guy. He's kind of naive, but he's a nice guy. I love his spirit. I think he's a wonderful human being. Yeah. And he's got Jonathan Neville. I'm like, man, there's there's something going on here. I, I can't quite read Jonathan. But he was saying some really fascinating, interesting things. It, it was... He, he was a just an outside the box thinker. So that's when I first, now this is probably the fall of, this is probably summer, fall of 2020 when I start engaging their stuff. So now I, now I know what it's like to be hear the Mormonese from a faithful perspective. So I got to hear it from like, in one sense, from the X perspective with Mormon stories, I got to hear it from more of a progressive scholarly middle of the road, road with gospel tangents. And then I engage Rod in the Heartlanders, and now I'm hearing a very faithful, but kind of a, a, a little outside of the box faithful, because it's not necessarily church approved. 
stuff. It's their own movements, their own thing. But it's like, these are how regular, really true blue Mormons who are like the foundation of the church. This is how they think. This is how they talk. They're talking amongst themselves in a way that's just for their audience. And I'm having this little evangelical interloper listening in and saying, I'm hearing a lot of similar things here. I resonate with these people because I, I tell people, you know, my parents had um, storage, survival food in the 70s. They thought the world was coming to an end. And and so many of the same books that a lot of the Heartlanders read, the same heroes. I had an uncle who was a big fan of Ezra Tap Benson. <laughs> I read the John Birch Society materials growing up. So I'm tied into this right-wing world. Mm-hmm. And I told Rod and I told John Delinus that I was a McConkie. We, we were McConkey evangelicals. <laughs> so, so I resonate with them because like that's a very similar world, very similar similar terminology. That world doesn't scare me because I grew up in that world. I'm not as... Very literal, very orthodox. Yeah, very literal, uh, very like end of days, imminent, uh, new world order, um, one world religion, um, all the stuff that's kind of, it's all coming to a head. And that's kind of what the, that's the world that they're in. And, and, and that's the world I grew up in. So I'm not judging it. Not at all. So, so now I want to get back to a little bit because now as I'm talking about, I'm seeing, watching all these programs. And this is one of the reasons why John wanted me on his program is because circa probably, this must've been early 2020 or 2020. Yeah. Yeah. It was early 2020. So I think when Christopher Thomas was interviewed on Mormon stories. So you can look up the timestamp. It's been around the start of COVID then? No, this is a little before COVID. Um, yeah, this is before COVID. And uh, I'm watching his interview, and I'm like, oh, here's this Pentecostal Yahoo. John Nolan's going to tear him into pieces. Because the Charismatics and Pentecostals were, were similar, but were also a little different. Uh, Charismatics tend to come from upper white, white upper middle class. Protestant denominations were their background like ours. So more like mainline Christian intellectuals. And then the Pentecostals come from rural areas or poor areas and in, in urban areas. So you kind of look just, you know, they were th- on the other side of the track. Hmm. I'm freaking watching this Christopher Thomas giving his er- interview. And he's talking, he's talking about his life story, his interaction with the Mormons in the seventies. He played in a rock and roll band as a Pentecostal in the seventies, which is unusual because my, my siblings at the time growing up in the seventies, they were burning their rock and roll records because they are the devil. Right. He writes this book, a Pentecostal reads the book of Mormon. So part two, he's kind of like defending the Book of Mormon, even though Christopher, it does not function as scripture to him. He's, yeah. he's, he, he, he respects the book enough to actually do, to do what he did, a textual analysis of the book, right? So he's kind of almost in one sense being an apologist for the Book of Mormon <laughs> <laughs> on Mormon stories as a Pentecostal. Is right? he defending the, the teachings and... No, he's just he basically John Delenn's like, it's all garbage. You're nothing to do this thing. It's just, and, and Christopher's like, oh, oh, hold on, John. Actually, let me let me share with you a few things I like about the Book of Mormon, or maybe let me read you, read you a scripture, one of my favorite scripture verses in the Book of Mormon, wow. right? So then part three comes along, and this is where church service breaks out, where you can tell this is a conversation that John and Christopher are having about, and you could tell. So Christopher starts telling his story and also he's, he's witnessing to John and he's crying. You know, he's, 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 there's, like I say, church service broke out and I'm sitting there in my living room and I'm having church service because I'm feeling the spirit. And, uh, 
I remember watching and I was like crying. Okay, I'm crying as I'm hearing Christopher talk about his faith and what it means to him. He's got six, six or seven degrees and two doctorates, including one from uh, one of his degrees is from Princeton. This guy's a very, very smart right. man. Yeah. Very, yep. And he's sharing not about what's up here, but he's sharing what's here. And that's 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 what it's and that's what hit me was it hit me right here. And I remember just thinking, yeah, you know, if that's that's the kind of Christianity I can maybe make my way back to. Wow. So that plants the seed. So here we have Mormon stories, anti-Christian, anti, you know, atheist and anti-Mormon and all this kind of stuff. And I have this Pentecostal kind of defending the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and then 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 he's, he's then, then the Holy Spirit enters into the conversation. Wow. And it hits me. Now, this is the crazy thing, because since I've started my channel, I get exact same reports from people who tell me, Steve, I watch your program because I hear this from true blue Mormons. Steve, I watch your show because at any moment, the Holy Spirit's going to enter into the conversation. I have people tell me they, they cry when they watch my episodes. So I understand that. It resonates with me because that's exactly what happened to me. So I'm like making my way back a little bit. That's so now maybe I'm... How it touched your heart because you probably felt at that point no intellectual argument could be persuasive to change your mind about your faith, but it was hit you in, in your heart. That is absolutely right. This is the thing. I tell people, and I don't know if I said this on, on, on the record before, but I, said, I would do a much better job in a debate taking the atheist position than I would as the Christian position. Yeah, I would say I feel the same if uh, I were to go and debate uh, a critic of the church. I would do better as a critic than I would as an apologist. Yeah, and that's why this is special. It's special what you have, and it's special what I have. Because to have, to know everything we know and to have our dark night of the soul, our dark decade of the soul. And then to go through hell like I did. To not know, like, what the hell, Steve? Why in the world are you studying this Mormonism stuff? You're a fool and an idiot. I'd be mad at myself. Mad at myself for doing this. Like, you don't have anybody to talk to. What what you're you're crazy, Steve. You're a nut job. Something like that. I would I would always attack myself. I'm a I'm a very harsh person to myself. My I'm my own worst. I'm mad at myself, man. Dude, this is the thing. This is the thing, man. As I'm telling my story to you, does it not appear to you that there's there's a something, there's a story developing? And I tell people so okay, I'm I, I'm going to say this now because I'm not quite back yet into faith, but I do. This is how I look. I look back at it now and I say, you know what? I thought I deconstructed God. I thought I just deconstructed the scriptures, but it turns out God deconstructed me. And I needed to go through that process because I was arrogant. I had a big ego. I thought I was better than most people. I thought I was the smartest person in the room. I would make people feel small that were my intellectual, uh, my in my mind, intellectual inferiors. I'd make sport of that. 
I was a cruel person to people I didn't like. And I would find their weak points and I would pounce because that's what I did. And that's the kind of person I was. And I still have some of that in me. And the Lord's working on me. And, uh, you know, and so for me, I, because of who I am and the way I'm wired, hard, hardwired, I had to go through all of that to finally get back and have a relationship with him. And that's why I, I had to go through that, man. Uh, now I get it. I understand it. I see it all now. That's beautiful. And it, it makes me think of like the quote of the dot, dots don't connect looking forward, but when you look back and you see the purpose of it all and you see if that, if I didn't go through this experience, I wouldn't be here where I am now. And it makes me think of uh, a Bible verse that says that all things work together for, for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose or whatever it says. Like mm -hmm. even all those bad things you experience with, you know, your, your depression, suicide thoughts, uh, you know, lo losing your faith, going full blown atheist, that God was still there, you know, yeah, he was there with you that whole time and he was able to work again in your life. Yeah. It was his hand directing the whole thing. It's almost like I had to go through that. I had to go through the fire. And if it hadn't have been for you decades earlier, studying and investigating Mormonism and reading all these books, you then would have gotten into these podcasts and that then you wouldn't have listened to that interview with Chris Thomas and John Glenn. <laughs> Whoa. Right. Um, I think that's why God is so good. Um, and I understand all the arguments atheists. I get it. And in, in the old Steve Pinecker is watching me and he's like, this is a liver blabbering idiot who's following his emotions and he's all subjective now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm subjective, but you know what? That's fine because I, that's part of who we are, man. We were hardwired for it. We are here. I'm talking to you. Okay. I believe in evolution. I, I believe in science. Yep, me too. I also look at the history of mankind, and I recognize that the only reason we are here is because our ancestors believed. When we can trace, we can trace down the moment the divine spark happened with humanity. It keeps on getting pushed back, by the way. But we can see the moment they start burying their dead and not leaving them on the side of the road, or they didn't have roads, you know, they, they, they started taking care of the dead and then they started doing uh leaving things maybe of importance to that person or maybe something that will help and protect them in the afterlife right so now we have this idea that there's something bigger than we are not just animals there's something bigger than us involved in this whole process it's a recognition of the divine and something outside of you yeah and so this is what gave us a, an evolutionary advantage is that we believed and so by believing, we have gotten to this point where we are, which, warts and all, um, it's a pretty remarkable story, the, the human story. It's a, uh, it can be inspiring. It can also be very deeply, profoundly human and spiritual. So when I go to my atheist friends, I'm like, you want to chuck it. 
and you just want to walk away and you want to cut off the very essence of our humanity is our divinity, is our spirituality. And that's what makes you a whole and complete person. And you're going to walk away from that. You are turning your back on those first ancestors who saw something more than just us being pieces of meat. You're turning your back on them and the legacy that they've provided for us. And so if anything, just from a basic humanistic idea, you know, don't turn your back on our ancestors because you wouldn't be here if they didn't believe. So true. Wow. That, that's so beautiful. So, so you had this, um, the spiritual experience where you feel like it was God almost calling you back and did that, was that experience, did that restore your belief in God and Jesus again um, in a lot of things uh, to do with Christianity? And, and was there any sort of wrestle or, or conflict after this experience between doubts? Or was this really propelled you back into believing again? So let's talk about what happens. So COVID time happens. All right. So this is all the before times. This is all the before times. And then COVID happens. Yeah. Right. And I live in a Christian community here in Florida. I mean, literally, Benny Hinn and major televangelists got their start here. All right. Some of the Oral Roberts has been here. I mean, all the big, all the big televangelists, you name them, they've been here on this campus. And I'm sitting at the pool. And I'm hearing these people. This is right as it's just starting. And they're talking about some really, really weird stuff, man. Like conspiratorial. Like, I'm like, what is going on here? Now, in my, and they're all afraid. They're all full of fear. Now, that con contrasts that with what the Bible tells us a true Christian is supposed to be. They're supposed to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's right. See, as I envisioned it, when you saw those old movies from the 1950s, of those Christian martyrs, they're going to be marched up to, you know, into the Colosseum, and they're about ready to lose their lives. In the movies, they showed them walking in, singing hymns, ready to meet their Savior, right? They weren't afraid. They were at peace. I was told that when tribulation would come, um, that God is going to, don't worry, you're fine. And I'm seeing all these Christians who are afraid. I don't see, and God told me early on, see, this is the thing. This is when God starts telling me stuff. Now, he said, where there's fear, I'm not there. That's one of the first things he tells me. And I'm like, okay, I get that. The other thing I'm thinking is, why is it this, these Christians are all afraid? I'm the, but at this point, I would say I'm an agnostic. Why are they afraid? No, I'm not. See, theologically, I should be the one that's afraid. See, the way that the, the story goes is that Christians have the peace. The world would be panicking. Why am I not panicking within the context of Christianity? But they are. So that taught me a very valuable lesson. I tell people, I, I left the village for like 10, 15 years, whatever, maybe actually 20, because I actually quit going to church probably in the early 2000s altogether. And then I became an atheist. So I left the village 20 years ago. I come back, it's on fire. My people are in a bad place. So then that just made me, my heart went out for these people because they've been told so many lies from the pulpit that they fell for, for so much BS that these so-called prophets have been teaching to them about all this garbage. It That's all they know. And they're afraid because they were told, they were taught, well, don't worry, 
when the when the apocalypse begins, you're going to fly away and you're going to be raptured, left behind, right? Right. Well, we're still here. We're supposed. To, and see, this is this is white America. We're so freaking spoiled. White American evangelical Christians. What this COVID thing in the developing world? COVID is a Tuesday. In the developing world, they're living in the tribulation. These white middle class evangelicals think that they're like, what's going on? And they're all afraid. Like, man, you've been living in such a privileged environment that the, the moment, look, the, they're freaking out that gas is three fifty a gallon. They're freaking out that the shelves don't have as much groceries in them. I'm like, man, we had it so good, and now you think you, you, you all these things. People have lived like this all throughout human history. Much place worse place than you. But because it's happening to you, now you think you're living in the last days. Or there's, there's this whole conspiracy and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, no, get over yourself. So privileged. Yeah, so privileged. So that's what's happening here stateside, folks, in case you're wondering. You know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy here, dude. It's freaking crazy here. <laughs> and so I felt like I felt bad for Christians because I felt they were, they were sold a bill of goods, man. They all been conned and they still freaking believe this BS, man. Well, what does that have to do with anything other than, well, I need to get back into faith because people need Jesus, man. Yeah. These people need Jesus more than I ever realized. So I feel like the Lord's... And John, you know, you're going to experience tribulations, but, you know, I'll come to you. I won't leave you comfortless. You know, my peace I leave with yeah. you to his disciples. Well, and that's the thing. See, most of these Christians really thought we'd be in the second or third decade of the millennium because in many sense, the 19th century Christianity also gave us dispensationalism, which basically sets a calendar and a timeline. Everything takes every Israel becoming a nation is the very central theme of dispensationalism. And they and, and this is the interesting thing is dispensationalism said that Israel had to become a nation again. That would that would that would bring in the end days. A miracle, a miracle happens. 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. So for all your dispensationalists from that period on, it's like 40 years is a biblical generation. It's going to happen within 40 years. So now we have Hal Lindsey selling a ton of books in the 70s saying basically that Jesus is going to, the, the, the end days, 1988. Jesus is probably going to appear. The rapture is going to be in 1981. And then, then, then you have a seven-year tribulation. All gets wrapped up in 1988. And then we have millennium time. Yeah. Well, then, of course, that they passed. But yet, no, Jerusalem, the capital, was captured in 1967. So let's say that that's really the main thing, the city of God. So now that gets us to 2007, you see. So now what 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 does what, what the 90s look like? Everything's leading up year 2000. Now we got Y2K. We got 40 years. We're still within that 40-year generation window. And it's all leading up to the year 2000, which in for us growing up, the year 2000 was the future. That was like, we, it, it, it had a two in front of it. And we, we all had ones in front of us for, for a long time, right? So everybody felt like there was something significant about, oh, it's 2000 years after the birth of Christ, you know, give or take. So there's so much significance to this date period. And it's almost like back then in the 90s, you had this resurgence of end time stuff going on because it was all leading up to this. Well, now we're in freaking, and this is the thing, this is the thing. In the 90s, I went to a few people and I said, listen, and I talked about this on my interview, recent interview with John DeLynn, is that the period from 2020 to 2030 is going to be called the second great disappointment. The first great disappointment was 1844 when Jesus didn't return, and that's what ultimately started the Seventh-day Adventist Church, okay? <laughs> and so 
The second great disappointment would be we're going to enter into that final decade because once we get past 2030 or 2033, now we're 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. Now, like any final number that you could, that you could use is, 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 is the whole entire just 19th century model of how the end of days is supposed to occur collapses in much of the way the Jehovah's Witnesses has collapsed when they made all their false predictions about the end days. So now what happens after that? Now a new type of American Christianity is going to have to come out of the ashes. And so that's why I felt like maybe the Lord is preparing me for that as well. Maybe that's a secondary preparation. I don't know. I see through a glass darkly. But I do know the Lord showed me. And see, this is the thing. If in the 1990s I went to somebody and said, we're going to be here in the year 2020, they'd say, you're, going, you're, you're telling lies of the devil. Because that's how convinced people were that we are living in the end days. So now... It's not happening. Jesus hasn't returned. Yeah. And there's verses in the New Testament where Jesus says, like, nobody knows the day or the hour. Right. And he's going to return. But yeah, and I think even the, the early members of the LDS church, Joseph Smith, they all expected to be in their lifetime and, you know, that the end would be nigh. And yep. over 200, nearly 200 years later. See, this is the thing. This is why you're going to, I just don't like to criticize the church that much, the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't really criticize the history. I don't really criticize the people because I look at the history and I'm like, this is all too familiar for me. And it, it makes me more empathetic and sensitive and understanding of what the world they came in, the world that I was in. I see parallels. Yeah, I get it. You know, I, I don't. You know, that's that's why I have the, like I don't have the same feelings for the Jehovah's Witnesses that I have for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I feel much more negative towards the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I don't have that. I don't I don't feel that, that affinity I have for Joseph, the affinity that I have for this idea of new scripture addressing modern day times. The idea that you have a young boy who didn't know what church he should belong to and he inquires of the Lord. And I think he has something like a born again experience that puts him on a trajectory that I completely understand. I get it. I don't, I, I don't, it's not an either or proposition to me. It's almost like he was a believer. Maybe he was conning himself, right? That's fine. But he was a believer. And I think that's first and foremost, how I look at Joseph, all warts and all. And I recognize all the issues that we have with him. And I don't want to make it seem like, like I said earlier, praise to the man here, Yeah. but I understand the man. And you can see a lot of uh, it coming from that, 19th century Christianity context as well. Yep. Uh, even some of the things that the church could be criticized for with some of its teachings of racism, that that didn't originate. That came from the environment. Uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, uh, Christianity in general held those yep. views as well. So so what happens next in your story? So start of COVID, you're feeling this peace. Um, yeah, so I'm feeling this inner peace, and I feel like now I've I've had this moment, and it wasn't like an instant like Damascus Road thing, but that was a realization right then and there that, ooh, and I should be afraid, but I'm not. So that just kind of gets me starting to be open to talking to him again and hearing his voice again. And the Lord just tells me things and people like I, I people have been commenting on my mormon stories interview now that it's been posted on mormon stories like what about this voice and all this kind of stuff and it's like it's not a literal voice and it's and, and sometimes it's more like images so i just remember i was talking to a friend who lives in california and i had like 20 subscribers i think it was april so I had like maybe maybe 40 subscribers 
And he said, well, it's interesting what you're doing with your channel. Are, are you going to ever tell your story? Because he knew intimately my full story. And I said, um, I'm going to go on this program called Mormon Stories. And I'm going to be interviewed by this guy named John Lynn. And I'm going to tell my life story there. Because I don't want it, my channel to be about me. If people want to know who I am, let's just watch my Mormon Stories interview. If you're really interested, sit through the 12 hours. If you really want to get to know me, watch watch it. If you genuinely want, and see, that's my test. Like, if they've watched the whole thing, then I know they're my friend. Because <laughs> they're genuinely interested in hearing my story. Yeah. If they watched a little bit, then they're they're an acquaintance. <laughs> <laughs> I've earned your friendship that I watched the whole 12 hours. <laughs> you know, and it was a beautiful thing. So this is so this is the thing. Like, so the Lord shows me I'm gonna be on Mormon stories. It happens. The Lord didn't show me I was gonna have Richard Bushman on. Um I he didn't show me I was gonna have Sandra Tanner on. He just showed me a few bits and pieces of things. But I do remember this. No, I'll actually I take that back. I wish I maybe somewhere in my messy studio I have a list of about 15 names I wrote down that I wanted to. My goal is to talk to this person, whether I get him on my program or if I just get a chance to talk to him. I'm going through my list and I start the channel in March. By the time August comes along, there's only one name left on that list I hadn't reached out. And this included, like, a John Lynn on there. I mean, I had some big names on this list of people I wanted to talk to. And one of the last names was Sean McCraney, part of the matter. And I'm like, you know, I'm just, a, I'm talking to Denver Snuffer now. Denver Snuffer wasn't on my, that initial list. But here I am in contact with Denver Snuffer, and I haven't even reached out to Sean McCraney of part of the matter. So I thought, I got to get, get, get in touch, because he was kind of like the very first, like, YouTube person I was listening to about Mormonism. And so I reach out to him. I tell him a little bit about myself. We hop on a Zoom call. And it's the craziest, most surreal thing. I'm like, I'm talking to Sean McCraney. Now, I've already talked to some big names, so it's not like that big of a deal. But what was remarkable is that every single person's name on that list, that was the last name that I scratched off. And I did a Zoom call with Sean McCraney. And I was explaining to him, he said, you know what, Steve, brother Steve? said, you got a ministry. What do you mean? No, I don't, no, no, you got a mystery. Here, I want to pray over you. So he prays over me. Said, I want the Lord to bless and flourish your ministry. Now I'm not thinking ministry because I'm not I'm not talking about proselytizing on my show. And I don't do proselytizing and I don't bash and I'm not anti-Mormon. I love I love the Mormon people. I love President Nelson. I love Joseph Smith, right? But he goes and he confers on me that I have a ministry. Now, this is controversial because a lot of people hate Sean McCraney. A lot of Christians don't care for him in Utah. But like He's I said earlier. And progressive himself, wouldn't he? Compared to most mainstream. Yeah, he, well, he's kind of gone and he's taken quite a different path. I'm not entirely, I don't understand what he's doing, to be honest with you, on some level. I, I, I've reached out to him. I haven't heard back from him because he was going to come on my program earlier this year to make announce his new cult, <laughs> as he called it. It's kind of a weird group. But... But that was the moment where I see on this. So this is the thing, Sean McCrane. I know you have, there's a lot of Christians out there who don't like him. And, and I understand that, but this is the thing. Same thing with John Lynn. I've looked in Sean McCrane's eyes. I've talked to him. I've seen what he's like off camera. And I do know that there's a sincerity there, but, but this is, goes back to God will use any broken vessel that's afforded to him. So if you look at Sean McCrane, all warts and all, God used him because now this is never, and again, I don't use, I don't, 
throw the word ministry around because I don't want oh an evangelical ministry to Mormons. Oh, we need another of those. No, because it's it's a ministerial in the sense that it's relational one-on-one with folk. So I'll, when I go on Mormon stories, my inbox is flooded. Now I I didn't even have like my email address. Like I I the people found my personal email address and started bombarding my personal mailbox. And then they started bombarding my Mormon book reviews mailbox, the ones that went did a little further digging. My email mailbox is full of people from across the world. And uh, I get these emails, these letters, these paragraphs of people telling me their Mormon story. And the reason they reached out was because they were touched by my story. So by the, before my final episode on that Friday airs, before it's finished, my phone's exploding. From people that are friends of mine that have been watching it, or just like, my phone's exploding. I'm hearing from people throughout the world. The next morning, I'm having breakfast from with a guy who drove an hour and a half to meet with me because he's like, I got to meet you now. I got to meet you now. And then I get these long letters. And you know what I hear from? I hear from young people. I hear from Christians. I hear from LGBTQ people. I hear from middle-aged women and men. I hear from people all across the world. And they're telling me their story. Isn't that an interesting pattern? I hear from faithful Mormons, Christians, atheists, LGBTQ. Guess what? That's my audience. Everybody. And not a harsh word from hardly anybody, including the atheists, were touched by my story. So I'm like, that puts me in a very privileged position because I don't think there's too many people in that place that all those groups would kind of claim you as their own. And so, like, that was a remarkable, powerful thing. Now, why don't we, uh, the elephants in the room, why don't, why don't we address, why don't you ask me the question that led to why maybe I had a profound impact? I'm not telling you how to do your show, but I think it's this is a good spot. Well, I, I just want to ask you a week. Oh, sure, please do, that. please do. What was your initial goal or what's sort of like the goal, the motivation from your channel? What sort of you're looking to, to do with it, uh, would you say? There was, see, that's the thing. God told me, make no plans. He told me right off the bat, don't make any plans. Just, he said, I'll, I'll do I'll, I'll do the planning for you. So I'm like, okay, now this is type A, needs to be in control, needs to have the goals. Where am I going to be six months from now? Where am I going to be a year from now? None of that. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. I don't. I have no idea who's going on my program next week. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, literally, I, have, I, I, I don't make any plans. But every week... I have some awesome guests on or break a news story. Oh, we got to get into the Joseph Smith photo too. Oh, yeah. um, every week, something remarkable happens. Every day, my phone rings, dings, and it's an email or a text from somebody, and it's remarkable stuff. Yeah. Wow. So that's, see, that's not, and that, not only that, I, I, I used to book guests. Now, guests typically contact me, but I have my listeners helping book guests for me. They're reaching out. I have previous guests of mine who are helping me get guests on. So they're doing the booking for me now. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I just, you know, you're, you're going to be amazed some of the people I have coming down, coming on yeah. uh, on my show in the next few weeks. Um, but I still don't know for sure when they're coming on. I don't know. When I'm, I don't know. 
I don't know when the interviews are going to happen. So I don't make any plans. So God showed me, don't make any plans. And I'm like, okay, so I'm making plans. Well, dude, if I had made plans, I don't think my channel is where it's at. Yeah. I mean, it's monetized. Only 8% of YouTube channels get monetized. 99% of podcasts fail. Now I'm in this like about 15, 16 months. And by all metrics, I have a, a, what was can be considered a very highly successful YouTube podcast channel. And within the context of the Mormon podcasting world, it's everybody knows me. All the podcasters know me from radio. And, and, and this is the key thing. Initially, all the, the the big ones know me. I think it's some of the smaller guys that are still stumbling on me. But the big the big guns recognized early on who I was in that that this channel had the potential to be something special, just like I'm doing for you. You know, you have yeah. potential to do something special. And you've had some really well known, famous historians, apologists, critics, other podcasters. You know, John Dolan, RFM, uh, Gerardo. You've had Dan Vogel, Richard Bushman. Um, I can't think of any more names, but you, you've had so many people on your podcast, like really big names in this, not just in the, the Mormon circle, but then all these other branches of the restoration yeah. and Christianity. And that's such a interesting niche. And uh, you're almost like a, a friend and a neutral party in this argument that you, you don't probably get the attacks from ex-Mormons or from really extreme Orthodox Mormons that you're almost very inclusive yeah. in, in your podcast, which I think is great. I think that's such a Thank amazing you. position to be in. So you went on Mormon Story, so you started your channel, uh, your podcast, April April 2020. Yeah, so if we taped in March, sometime in mid-March of 2020, and then uh, then it was released the first week of, uh, the first week of April, April 4th, it was April 4th. Yeah. Okay. And then you go on to Mormon Stories. It was this year, I believe. Was it April that mm -hmm. you were on Mormon Story, or maybe it was filmed prior? And then your yeah, just uh, two weeks before, and then we filmed. Yeah, and then it was released. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, tell us a bit about that. What was it like? Um, you know, okay, who got in contact with who? Did you reach out to John? Did he reach out to you. Um, mm -hmm. Anything you want to tell us before? Yeah, sure. The interview, yeah. and then what it was like. You know, going to the Mormon Stories studio. Uh, tell us what it was like, you know, as soon as they hit live and everyone was watching. Just what was that experience like? So, you know, uh, the first time I'm, the first time I ever, yeah, I'm in touch, this is interesting. The first time I'm ever in touch with John Dolan is April 4th, 20, what is it, 20, April 4th, 2021. Okay. We're talking to each other on Reddit. That's the day my interview drops with joint production with Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents. And I contacted him because I tell him, we talk about you. John Dolan's like, his ears are burning, of course. What do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, so I start chatting with him. And I'm thinking about, I just, just dawned on me. April 4th is the first time I talked to him in 2021. April 4th, 2022 is the, the and I didn't schedule this. They scheduled it, is the very first episode of Mormon Stories. Talk about perfect bookends, huh? Yeah. So... So then John and I, we just correspond. I tell him a little bit about myself and he's interested and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's watching me very, very closely. And then the interview drops. So on Tuesday, he drops the interview of the fireside that Richard Bushman gave. And uh, he, 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 he leaked tape and he shows it on his channel. Thursday, my interview goes up with, with Richard Bushman. 
that was not planned. <laughs> it just happened. But I was on the phone with him the day I taped my interview with Richard Bushman. Cause he was like, I got to talk to this guy. How the heck did you do this? How could you pull this off? I had uh, maybe a hundred subscribers, right? 120. I probably had about 120 at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that's really got him going. And then we start talking and then he's like, I want to have you in my program. So actually last fall, he had an idea for me to do something. We done it remotely. He was going to have me give commentary on a, a very controversial thing that was happening at the time. I thought, well, this is my opportunity. I'm going to take it. But part of me was like, you know, I don't know if that's the episode I want to do. But he was going to have me on. He was going to have me like as on a, a on as a panel to do a panel about the current controversy happening in the church, mm -hmm. which I was kind of qualified for, but it wasn't really my wheelhouse. But I, oh, hey, I'm not going to turn down the opportunity. So then. I'm sitting, I find myself in September of last year, sitting across, having lunch with um, John Dolan. And Christopher Thomas is sitting next to me. Oh, no way. Yep. And because uh, Christopher is good. I mean, Christopher is very, very good friends with John, you know, just on a, just on a personal level. Mm -hmm. And... I'm sitting there talking to John and you got John DeLynn. He's a very intense guy and people don't get this. They, they take a lot of things personally by the way he is. He's just a very intense person. He has really, he'll jump down your throat, you know, not because he's trying to, he's just really like, like he's so inquisitive. Like you say something like, what do you mean? Right. You know, and, and, and some people find it off putting. I didn't because again, I was prepared for that. You know, I mean, I was 20 years old. I'm sitting in Indianapolis, Indiana for the Republican State Convention. I have the party chairman for Lake County, Indiana. We have a hospitality suite and we're in the bedroom area. And he's sitting there and this is a very powerful man, CEO of a corporation, and he's F-bombing me. I'm just a kid. He's going after me. He's cursing me. He's, he's doing everything he could to intimidate me because what happened was I had a candidate for lieutenant governor that, the that I recruited delegates to support. And he had a state senator in, in his own county that he wanted to support. Turns out I was able to get, as a kid, 2021, organized the recruitment of these delegates that I literally took control of the delegation from the county chairman. And he did everything he could to intimidate me. Well, a lot of people would be afraid when you get this powerful man who is heavily involved in politics, part of the party machine, and he's trying to intimidate you. And I'm sitting there like, oh, I won. I, I won. And so I did. I was sitting there thinking like, you know, he's just going after me. And he's really intimidating. He's like, man, I just <laughs> I just beat this guy at his own game. And he's been doing it all his life. And I'm just some young whippersnapper, right? <laughs> I beat him. So that's, I don't want to brag, but that's how good I was in politics. So I'm sitting across from John DeLynn. He's a very intense person, but I've already been pre prepared for all this. So I don't find him intimidating at all. I just look him in the eyes and I'm just like, you know, I'm here because I love you, John. I'm here because the Lord showed me I'm to be your friend. And, and, and the Lord brought us here together to have this conversation. And then I told him, I said, the Lord showed me. Now, again, John had already kind of already reached out to me about maybe coming on this program. Okay. Mm -hmm. I said, the Lord showed me that I'm supposed to go on your program. And John goes and looks at me and says, well, if Heavenly Father says you're supposed to come on my program, then you're coming on my program. Gosh darn it. 
<laughs> so that's that's that. And then then he's like, well, why don't we set up? Why don't you set up like an outline? We'll do a presentation, and you could you can you can do it from your house, and we can do like a remote thing. And Christopher Thomas says, oh well, I think John. Steve Pinecker is the kind of person that if he has the opportunity to go on Mormon Stories, that he, he'd he book a flight to come out to the studio. And John's like, okay, why don't we do a studio interview? I'm like, okay. Now, this is the other thing. See, I didn't I didn't say this to John, but the Lord also showed me I was going to be in the studio, which obviously you, most guests end up in the studio. But that John was doing a lot of remote stuff then because of COVID. So it wasn't like a sure thing that you would be in the studio at this time. So, so I was like, okay. And then John's saying, well, if the Lord told you, then I, I want you in my program. Isn't that interesting, right? And you think to John in one way, but then on the other, and he, we've had lunch, and he's told me, I'll never make fun of your faith, Steve. He never has. He's never attacked my faith. He's he's always been very, very respectful of my faith, very much so. And um, so, yeah, I get this afforded, this opportunity to go on this program. So now um, time goes by. We're talking, and John, you know, and this is another thing people take personally. Like, you send him a message and he doesn't return it. That, folks, that's the world he lives in. You're not always going to get a return response. Maybe eventually, but if you reach out again or a second or third time, maybe he'll he'll get in touch with you eventually. Okay, so I'll let you know. Podcaster with what over sixty thousand, yeah, subscribers. Right. I mean, I can't imagine how this. I mean, I get my mom's always like, "Your phone's dinging all the time." I'm like, "Can you imagine John Delin's phone?" <laughs> so I was like. So as this fall and winter goes in, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm establishing a rapport with Harado, um, you know, uh, who I really like and respect. And so I'm in touch with him and he's kind of giving me pointers for the channel. And I'm like, why don't you come on my program? So he comes on my program and it was cool because he got to tell his, because I was like, what's the studio like? I, give me inside information, just like what you're asking me. Because this isn't, people want to hear this. See, podcasters out there, this guy's asking the questions you should have been asking me. I would have reached out. See, if you've got 5,500 subscribers, don't be intimidated. This guy wasn't, you know. I mean, I reached out to you, but you weren't intimidated. You know, this is the thing. See, this is a very interesting story. So here I am. I'm, uh, it's December time. We're heading into Christmas. And then we're going, now it's the next year. Now we're into in 2022. I'm like, man, when's this going to happen, you know? But I wasn't, but, but, but at the same time, I was like, the Lord's got it all worked out. I'm not making any plans. He told me not to make any. So I was like, that's going to happen. I'm at peace. I'm at peace. It's going to happen. Because the Lord showed me I'm at peace. I'm not worried about this at all. It's going to happen. I knew it. So then finally, it's funny. Now, I don't know if this is directly related or not. But I think it was December or January last year or this year. I put a poll on my channel. What is your religious background? You know, like, are you LDS, Christian, blah, blah, blah. And, and and so I got, I heard back for the time, it was a pretty substantial amount of subscribers that I might've had like 400, 500 subscribers. I've only had like 400, 500 subscribers just this last December. Okay. And so I maybe get a, like a hundred or 150, I don't remember people participate in this poll and give me their backgrounds of their affiliation. I find out about half my audience is LDS and my half my, and about a quarter of my audience is evangelical. This is just a rough approximation. Mm -hmm. I would have had over 500 subscribers because I had my community page was activated. That's how I was able to do polls. You have to have 500 subscribers to activate your community poll page, giving you inside baseball. So you know what's coming up. Thanks, bud. So I, 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 a week, a few days later, I, another poll comes out and it's almost the exact same poll. This time, John DeLynn asking the religious makeup of his audience. 
Now, whether he saw my pull or not, I, I was like, this can't be coincidental. I never brought this up to him, but maybe subconsciously he saw it and didn't realize. But he asked the same question about his audience. And in his, he realized that only like 2% of his audience are LDS. And almost half of his, his half of his audience, almost half of his audience is nevermos. Really? And probably a large portion of those nevermos are probably evangelicals. Because evangelicals who are doing research on Mormonism, they're going to Mormon stories. So now he realizes about half of his audience are nevermos. Next thing you know, within a few days of that poll coming out, he has Randy Bell on, Dr. Randy Bell, who's an evangelical. He's on the horn. He's like, Steve, you got to come on. Because he realized his audience was much broader and diverse than he, than he thought. So that was what led then to him to kind of put me on, put me on the front burner. I, we got to get you, we got to get you on. It's important that we get Christians on and never moles on because that's like half my audience. And so that's when, that's kind of what was the impetus. Now, I don't know if me putting that poll, if he saw that, I, I can't make it because I never asked him, but I was just like, man, that's almost the exact same poll that I put out just a few days before. <clears throat> so and then next thing you know, uh, we're making arrangements. We're talking things over. He says, I want to give you, let's tape over two days. Let's do five or six episodes. Now, think about that. How many people, look, it's a privilege to be on one episode of Mormon Stories. That's typically all people get. It's a big deal if you're on multiple. But five, then it turns out to be Monday through Friday. So I devoted an entire week of programming to telling my story. And this is all within a year of all this happening, where I I know I'm going to be there. I, I see that I'm going to be in the studio, and I'm going to tell my life story. And it happened. Yeah, yeah, it did. And this is like, and I should go buy a lottery ticket, you know? <laughs> but but it was just kind of interesting just to have that story. That's why nobody's, you know, This I'm glad you're asking me this, because I think this, the background is so fascinating. So this is the thing. So I go... So I, I'm in a nondescript office building. You walk in there and there's no signage indicating Mormon stories. It's just a two-story office building. You you would never you would never even notice it if you drove by it. <clears throat> and then you would uh I went inside and it's just a basic <clears throat> office that's probably probably about three or four times bigger than my studio. Mine's just a tiny little studio. So it's, it's no, no, maybe five or 10 times, five or six times bigger. It's, it's adequate. Um, those brick walls that you see behind you are not CGI. They're actually just like real physical walls that you see the brick walls. And uh, it's much smaller. So like, it's almost, I imagine that when I was, when I would watch guests on the program, it almost looked like you had, like John Delin was at, like one part, and then you had like his guests were almost like on a pedestal and they would be talking. Sometimes you'd have like two guests sitting next to each other. So I thought it was like kind of more spacious of a studio than it was. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> I, um, so yeah, I was just, I was, it was really cool because it's, and, and then they had, uh, so basically you have four chairs and you got the lighting is very dim. It's kind of like a dark room with just a little bit of lighting. And uh, you have John, it's really interesting because John is sitting, Red crest directly across from me. So about probably about seven, eight feet straight across it for me. Mm -hmm. And he he's actually multitasking while he's doing the show. So while he's interviewing you, he's at his computer, he's adding to the show notes at in real time. 
Wow. He's providing the links for something that I'm talking about in real time, adding it all in there already. He's live producing the show while you're interviewing him. I thought he would have well, got he's one interviewing you. to be doing that. What's that? I thought he would have got one of his co-hosts to be so, doing Geraldo, who I asked to sit, I asked Geraldo to come onto the program for 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 a pretty major reason about my personal life. Yeah. I wanted him to be there so to tell my story. But I didn't know, and there there's another person in there, and there's this woman. I saw a glimpse of her that she was on the night before with Sandra Tanner, and she her name is Jen. I don't know who she is. As a matter of fact, I get there and it's only her and me, and John's running late. I'm like, yeah, I think I saw you on Mormon Stories last night. And she said, yeah, I was interviewing Sandra Tanner. That's the first time I've ever been on camera. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And, dude, I thought I had it all planned out because I thought, I'm going to have Geraldo in. This is going to really help the show. But God also had another plan. And he was going to have Jen in that room, had never done an interview until the night before. And what was so remarkable about having Jen in the room was this is somebody who's kind of, her shelf broke. She's just kind of figuring things out. She doesn't know what she believes anymore. Yeah. She doesn't, she's just like in free fall, but she gets lands into Mormon Story Studio as a background person helping with production and stuff like that, but nothing on camera. But what was so awesome about having Jen on was I was able to, especially in part two, when I give my naturalistic explanation of how I think the Book of Mormon happened, at the very end of it, if, if you recall, she starts breaking down crying because she says, I've never been told any of this before. Yeah. And I just remember saying, like, this is when it gets real. And I was like, you're a revelation. Because I'm able to, on camera and off camera, get the first response of what somebody who has never heard of the stuff before give me feedback immediately. Whether it's in between interviews, off camera, or it's on camera. So I'm able to hear, like, so this is how somebody who would have heard this for the first time would respond. So it was just this beautiful, remarkable setup. I feel that the Lord brought all four of us in there. And in the final episode, I even go to John Dillon and I said, John, I said, think about my journey that I just told. Think about the journey that you were on, which we talk about how he heard a voice to tell him to start a podcast in 2004. Nobody heard of a podcast in 2004. Yeah. To leave Microsoft, leave all that money on the ground, you just leave all that and walk away because a voice told him. It was super cool when he shared that experience. Um, I mean, think, so that's when we had like our little God moment in there when John says, I've got chills going up my spine right now, Steve. Yeah. And then, Geraldo, do you believe there's God? I don't know, John. <laughs> it was like one of those moments where you have people that maybe would identify as atheist or agnostic or whatever, but then you have like you you when you talk and unravel the story, you see you almost see like there's a guiding principle, a guiding hand in the whole process, and maybe you don't realize it until you start telling the story, like kind of how I did today, right? I'm telling as I'm telling the story, as I'm developing it, that that it it all kind of now falls into place. Now I wasn't a stupid idiot for studying Mormonism, man. I freaking became an encyclopedia of Mormonism. And had all this knowledge, but see, again, if I had done this podcast 10 years ago, I would have been highly manic. I would have talked really, really fast. I would have thrown out all this information and you would have been overwhelmed. But because I've been deconstructed and the anxiety and the stress and everything that, 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 that fueled me in the past is all gone, I'm able to take the information I know 
and I'm able to synthesize it in such a way where I'm not just giving you numbers and facts and figures like a rote, you know, uh, history, but I'm actually giving you like a, I'm able to tell, weave it in such a way that it's, a, it's, a, it's an accessible story. And I can show that I know a lot about Mormonism without trying to show, try to impress you by giving you all dates and data and figures, but actually been able just to be able to pull out of the, the memory banks something and then integrate it. And so I think it's helped me be able to tell a better story and tell my story better too and integrate Mormonism into it. See, this is the thing. I'm a product of Joseph Smith. I'm a product of the Restoration. I'm a product of the Book of Mormon, you see? And also evangelical born-again Christian who walked away from God, but didn't God didn't walk away from me. And so I think that this this whole like holistic thing that's happened to me, man, it's like, man, this is a beautiful thing. And I live in this country, we live in this world that's falling apart and everybody takes their sides and everybody hates another person. They don't want to have anything to do with anybody if you belong to the wrong political party or you're of the devil if you belong to a particular political party and vice versa. Both sides are nonsense, man. The secular religion is just as corrupt as the as, as, as American religion. There's, it's there's it's, too a, much we're, it's horrible here in America. It's awful, man. And, and honestly, I don't know if this thing's going to hold together. But this is the most fascinating thing to me is, how am I able to pull that off? How can I talk to everybody, people who don't talk to each other? How is it that I'm able to be a friend to both? How is it they both can look at me and say, like Randy Bell told me, he said, my channel is the, the Switzerland of Mormonism. It's a safe space for folk from all backgrounds, whether you're atheist, Christian, doesn't matter. Yeah. Mormon, LGBTQ, you all have a place on my channel. And I'm thinking like, well, if I can do this, why can't other people do it in other areas? Why can't we return to civility and just and showing Christian compassion and empathy and putting yourself in somebody else's shoes? I know exactly why Donald Trump got elected. It was all there all along. I lived in a blue-collar area, steel mills. Uh, the, the, the industrial Midwest was what powered America, and it was it was hollowed out. It was, and it was, Bill Clinton betrayed the blue-collar people by signing NAFTA. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. Bill Clinton betrayed the blue-collar folk, and utterly and completely destroyed the manufacturing base of the Midwest. Okay. And so you have these you have these meta epidemics happening in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois. This is the this is the the heartland of America. Western New York, Western Pennsylvania, it's the Great Lakes states, the Rust Belt. This was the place that made steel. Gary, Indiana was just on the road. It was a steel capital of the world. You had Maytag, you had all these uh, companies, Whirlpool, all these major appliance makers just in my backyard. All the cars were made in, in just, you know, the Ford factory just down the road from me. And basically what happens, and I'm getting politics, but I think there's something to this. The reason why is, mm -hmm. is Bill Clinton signs NAFTA. Now that means, what does that mean? This is a good thing. Why? Because white liberal progressives can spend $50 less for their dishwasher now. <laughs> it, it, because it's built in a, in, in, a, in, in a country where people are getting paid slave wages. Well, if nobody could see Donald Trump coming, these are the same idiots that didn't see uh, Brexit. What was uh, was it Sunderland? 
was the first major labor stronghold to vote that, that when 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 Sunderland, I think it was Sunderland, when that when those those uh, totals came in from there from a labor stronghold, mm-hmm. and it said they voted to leave, it was that moment. See the exact same thing happened in England and or in 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 the, uh, the United Kingdom. It's happened in America. It just happened a year before. You had the traditional blue collar white working class turn on labor. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens 2016. These were all the union Democrats I used to fight because I was a Republican and I was and this was a Democrat machine. And now all those people are are going to Trump rallies, and these were the same people that voted for Bubba. See, this is the thing people understand. The best state that that Bill Clinton did in both 92 and 96 was West Virginia. He won West Virginia by a landslide. Guess who was Donald Trump's best state? West Virginia, both types. So we've had this utterly and complete flip. Now, this is the political science talking, but I think maybe those of you might want to know what's happening in America. It was it's been there all along. And if but the the, the elites were so um, disconnected, just like the elites were disconnected in for Brexit. They just didn't yeah. see it coming. Yeah, I was so you, during Brexit, so I I did not see it coming. Uh, okay, so yeah, it was, but but I I I had this feeling. So I remember like right before twenty sixteen election happened, and I was like, keep an eye on Pennsylvania, keep an eye on Michigan. I said I have this feeling we're going to have a Sunderland moment, and we're going to see these purple states or traditional blue states flip, because I that I felt that same vibe that I was feeling election night during Brexit. Like I'm watching this on BBC and I'm like, there's something going on here, you know? And then I felt that same feeling going into 2016. So that's really, I'm, I'm digressing, but I think I just find it interesting. So then, but this is the whole thing mm-hmm. is that I'm not putting it on, I'm putting this on both parties, man, Democrat and Republican. They're both equally to blame for this whole mess that we're in. So I look at the, 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 our country is it's it's become so poisoned because people just you have to choose a side and i'm like i'm not choosing a side a pox on both of your houses as far as i'm concerned i'm not choosing a side i'm gonna do if the, the republicans have a good idea that's why they're but the thing is like i want there to be more steve pinekers out there that are engaging our culture and our society in such a way in which a republican and a democrat can come on their program and feel that they have a safe space and 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 that's that's that that's look I, I, I want a, Christ, a Christian who maybe doesn't, doesn't support LGBTQ people to come on my program. That's fine. But I'm going to have an LGBTQ person come on my program as well. And they're going to feel safe. Both will feel safe. Okay. It's important. You want to yeah. build that safe space where you can have dialogue. People can share their different views. Yes. In a way that they feel listened to, respected. Uh, it's inclusive. Even mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not all going to agree, but that's that's important. So there's yes, I think division, contention in yeah. society. Yeah, so I, I look at it this way: is I don't choose a side because, like, oh, I can go after the, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. I attack them over this. Blah, blah, blah. And then I look, oh, it's, <laughs> we're doing the same thing on our side. Yeah. So maybe humble uh, empathy, um, yes. realizing that we're all on, on this rock, flying through space, and this is all we got to, while we're here. <laughs> and why don't we try to make it as as close to Zion as we can? um why don't we strive for that right amen to that amen to that is there anything else um you want to talk about with regards uh to your interview with john delenn i i I remember i I liked you there was one part that was 
you talk about a naturalist um, mm -hmm. view of how the Book of Mormon could have been composed and yep. drawn upon the 19th century sources, but you did it in a way where you you were almost using your brain to always talk about this is well if if it's uh if there was no angel if there was um no you know gold plates well unless he made them himself this is how he could have done it so it was almost like your brain given this naturalist explanation but you kept saying but there's still a possibility for the supernatural you know yeah. and uh, i liked how you or you shared that in a way that you weren't uh, attacking and you were still allowing room for belief. And even at the end of your interview, I, if I remember him right, I think that, uh, you know, Jen almost um, talked about a divine experience that she had. And, and it seemed almost towards the end that people were becoming maybe a little bit more open to the divine than perhaps at the beginning of mm -hmm. your interview. Uh, and mm -hmm. I thought that was... And it, it was in a way that didn't come across preachy. It just came across genuine. You just shared your story and shared your heart. And it it definitely touched a lot of people. It did. And that and that was that moment when Jen had to like start crying. And I I, I, I teared up and I and I just and I just told her, I said, you know what? You know, just hold on to Jesus. Yeah. Just hold on to Jesus, hold on to him, and he won't let you down. And it was interesting because we took lunch after that episode was filmed. And John goes to me, he says, how's that not proselytizing? I said, it's not proselytizing, John. I said, if I go to you and say, turn or burn, repent, you're going to hell, that's proselytizing. If somebody goes and they're saying they're, 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 they're having a need in their life or they have this, this, this issue that's going on, and as a friend, I'd be like, well, let me tell you what works for me. Hold on to Jesus. He'll get you through this. I said, that's not proselytizing. That's just me telling them, like, hey, this this exercise routine really worked with me for this, right? I mean, I'm just giving them practical life advice. And he said, oh, oh, I get it. Yeah. So he understood then where I was coming from. I'm not, that was not proselytizing. That was me just sharing something that works for me that might work for her as well. Awesome. Uh, so in, in part five, you kind of dropped a bomb. Do you want to talk about that now? Um... <laughs> sure, that's fine. Let's talk about that. Because I, I do want us to talk. I mean, uh, hey, uh, take your time. Let this thing breathe. Uh, I think we also need to talk about the photo too. I'm excited yeah. about giving you inside information on that. But which, I, which we'd like to talk about first. I'm I'm gonna. Be... Oh no, no, let's 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 put a bow on Mormon stories. Okay, so in part five, just when I thought your story couldn't be more interesting, that's within this faith journey, then you kept it hidden all along. Some might say the, the church did that with their history. You did that with your story, and then it turns out that you were um, like gay or or homosexual mm -hmm. or had. Yep. same gender attraction however you'd like to put it mm -hmm. uh your whole life and that was something that you felt a lot of self-hatred and conflict could you just talk a little bit about that yeah uh, sort of growing up evangelical yeah. struggling yeah. with, you know being gay well one of the things i meant to go on mormon stories and talk about and i totally forgot so i go on the program and i talk about my first boyfriend i ever had was mauricio who was a barista at borders okay how much I really cared about him. And the channel got, I got back in touch with Mauricio shortly after I started the channel because what happened was when I started the channel, that's when I decided I'm going to reach out to all the people that I cut out of my life mm. family, friends, and even exes. It's interesting how you're opening up to people again. Yeah. This, uh, yeah. But see, I, experience. yep. You know, I thought, well, now that I'm back out there and I've, I'm coming back into society, my reintroduction to them is my YouTube channel. So now, if you want to know what Steve's up to, Watch my YouTube channel, because I'll tell you. Or watch the Mormon Stories interview, and then you can get all caught up. 12 hours of your time, you can get all caught up, and now you're up to speed. 
Now we can move on, right? So <clears throat> I brought up Mauricio, how much I cared about him, because he was my first my first boyfriend, right? And uh, the one thing I f failed to mention in the Mormon Stories interview was the person I was talking to the year before on the phone about who, when are you going to tell your story? I was talking to Mauricio, my boy, my ex-boyfriend. That's the person I told him. I said, well, I'm going to go on this program. It's called Mormon Stories. He didn't know who it was. And then I can tell my story there. And so I, in one sense, did I speak it into existence? Did God show me? I mean, there's so many different people. You can interpret it any way you want. I don't care. But this is the thing. It's like, it was Mauricio that I told that to. And so then it ties full circle where I talk about Mauricio, how much he meant to me. And I meant to meant, excuse me, talk about that in the interview. It was no big deal. God, I had planned, I did have a few other plans that I was going to put in there. Ended up not going in because the the the, the conversation just flowed naturally, just like this one does. Yeah. And uh, so a little bit of background. So I did I did talk about some more stories, but I recognized I was gay probably around first, second grade. I knew I was, I've, I've had crushes on boys, but particularly older boys. And uh, I just like boys, you know, and I, I never really had like any attraction towards girls. I mean, I had girlfriends. I had girlfriends in elementary school, I had girlfriends in high school because I go to Christian schools. You couldn't, you didn't really have an option. And even back then, you didn't have an option in the real world. In public schools, that wouldn't happen either. I mean, it's a highly homophobic area, yeah. especially world that we lived in in general. But also in particular, that area was maybe Democrat, blue collar Democrat area, but socially extremely conservative. So very anti gay. Matter of fact, the mayor that I worked for um, in the city, when he was a youth, they used to go around and beat up gay people. And here he is, the mayor of the city, you know. Yeah. So that's the kind of world that that I was in. So, um, so this is this is the place you you you. you and then on top of the Christianity, you're going to hell. This is you know you're going to be. I mean, it's an abomination. I mean, I know all the killer <laughs> scriptures, right? Yeah. So then I, I I had to separate myself from my Christianity and my sexuality were two different things, and they didn't intertwine at all. Because as the Christian, I recognize you're compromising if you embrace it. So like you had to keep them separated. So I had a physical physical attractions that I would have, but I would try to separate that from me being a Christian. So I'm I'm bifurcated, I guess maybe that's the word. And so that's how I approach things. Like I would even be like, oh, that's right, I'm gay. Like I would try to forget that I was gay, you know, just in my thought processes. But then the the thoughts would, oh, that's right, you're gay. And then as I'm growing up, um, and I talked about this on Mormon Stories, and I'm not going to tear up this time because I've told the story already, but basically I, I almost died from a burst appendix when I was in fourth grade. So this would have been probably around the same time, same age, when I'm getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and I'm speaking in tongues, and I'm about ready to go under the knife, and I'm like, they're going to find out. That's the first thought, the last thought I had when they before they put me under was they're going to cut me open and they're going to realize they're going to find out I'm gay, because I expected what would happen is they would cut me open. And I remember as a little kid, I would go garbage picking. Like uh, we had alleys, and I'd go pick through the garbage and look for things and you know cool you know toys or whatever, just cool things. I love going around looking, going through people's trash. Well, every once in a while, you'd come across like in garbage cans, you come across maggots like on on on. So I envisioned, I remember seeing a dead bird and it was full of maggots, you know. Um, and I I imagined that that was what was going to happen. They're going to cut me open and I would be full of maggots. Like this is the most disgusting thing I could possibly think of. 
So that I honestly thought like I'm on the verge of dying. Like this is an emergency surgery because I I I was deathly ill. And I'm more afraid that they're going to find out I'm gay than whether I'm going to die or not. So that's that's that that's a lot to put on a kid that's like what nine ten years old. So that's my story about me and how. Uh, and then I'm growing up. I get, and then so now my strategy was now I realized and I think I talked about this was. I have a younger sister, so I had three older brothers and sisters. They had a ten-year gap, and then there, then I was born. So they they all get married when they're like in their early teens, late teens, early twenties. That was the last generation that got married young. And then I had a younger sister who's twenty-two months younger than me, and we're Gen Xers. So they were they were boomers, and we're Gen Xers. And she's twenty-two months behind me. And I thought, okay, I can play this game up to a certain point. And that certain point will be when my younger sister gets married, it's going to be this glaring thing is why aren't you married? Because you're supposed to get married, right? Mm. So I knew once my sister got married, then I'm going to have to start being honest with folk and start living my life. Um, have any suspicions? None at all. No. None. Nobody. I don't think anybody that was my close family... I, I, it, I was so good at hiding it because I was a real rabid anti, I was a big homophobe too. Like I was the biggest homophobe in the room, but of course that's very, was very common back then. So I, I put up such defense mechanisms also because I was cruel and because I would make people feel little because I was aggressive and I was acid tongue. That was actually a defense mechanism to keep people from getting too close to me. Like I was an intimidating person. You don't want to get an argument with Steve. He's, he's in a, you just don't want to get an argument with him. So I was able to put up these defense mechanisms around me and have this persona of being like this really like precise, argumentative person. And if you get your facts wrong, I'm just going to crush you. And uh, that's how I did. But that was also me trying to protect myself as well. So it's like a defense mechanism. It, it totally was. Yeah. So I just, um, uh, realized once my sister i was in i think i was in my mid-20s yeah probably my mid-20s yeah yeah it would have been around this time yeah would have been about the mid-20s sometime she gets married i'm like okay well uh she i i as, as the clock was ticking to the wedding day my clock was ticking to well now so not long within a year um i leave my job with the city i take my job at borders bookstore borders bookstore is about the only area in that area that's very highly blue collar um or very suburban in blue collar so it doesn't have a whole lot of culture so the main cultural place that people went to was borders and it was the only place that lgbtq people felt safe space there so you had a lot of lgbtq people that worked there and i was a regular there i knew okay i can build my own community by taking a job here and have my own community that i can my own support system because we all knew what it was like in the 90s growing up gay in that particular area. We all were traumatized on some level. So you'd have this commonality. So here he is, right-wing Republican gay guy who works at borders amongst a bunch of progressives and evangelical Christians. So this was another example of a world that I lived in. So you had two groups. You had LGBTQ people and evangelicals working at borders. So those were your two main camps. Hmm. Because it's a highly evangelical area, too. There's a lot of Christians live in that area. Yeah. And so you had this, so I lived in this perfect world where I had evangelical friends who were like, okay, well, they had to accept me because I had this whole team of LGBTQ people too that were going to be there to support me. So I literally walked this tightrope of being 
gay Christian evangelical at Borders, and I was able to do well with both groups. So that was another, I just realized that's another example of being able to be a bridge builder and bring people together mm. and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that was me building an intentional community on my own by taking my job at Borders. I get my job at Borders within a few months. I'm telling everybody, tell my story. I come out. And it felt really good when I first came out and I, I flourished for a while at Borders, but then um, I had suffered depression. So I suffered terrible depression during this period of time. And, you know, so this, this I have this parallel story, evangelical Christian, um, being gay, realizing you're gay at a very young age, and then suffering depression since, you know, you're like 12 or 13. So I had this, all these parallel stories going on all at the same time. So there's a real battle going on up here, as you can imagine. Oh, I bet. I bet you're very conflicted and probably growing up in the church uh some christians and even some you know mormons would probably believe that you know god wouldn't create you right this is some trial or this is uh, yeah. either caused by sin and you can through enough faith or enough prayers yeah. or through some sort of healing yeah. god will take it away from you but from your experience uh did, did that occur no, and I never really thought there was, I didn't think there was anything to that. I mean, I, well, part of me didn't want to change. You know, I mean, in one sense, part of who you are and you're, yeah, I was like, I'm attracted to, I like guys. You know, I mean, I didn't really want to change that, right? Because that was just like no different than a guy who likes girls. And you want know I me, mean? yeah. they don't really want to change that, right? I like girls. No, you know? like when I, so, when I reflect on myself, it wasn't even a conscious right decision you know right. um maybe there was some sort of societal influence but really I, i've just always been attracted to girls even from yeah. a young age and it's not something that i could choose to change i don't think enough faith or prayers could cause me to change the other way yeah yeah i i'm, I'm with you on that and that's and that's how i saw it too because I, I i would read i'd watch People like, oh, 700. I saw somebody on the 700 Club and they gave their testimony about how, how God changed them. And I'll, I guarantee that person's gay now. They're still gay. They never were not gay. And, and and that was the lie, the great lie that happened with Evergreen. It often happened to Exodus International within the evangelical world. And they those are all shut down now because it was junk science and it didn't work and nobody was cured. Um, and it was just a waste of everybody's resources and time. And people were basically mentally tortured going through these groups. So I, I saw that. I saw what these people, I heard about what happened at these camps, these conversion camps. Like, I ain't doing that. I'm not going through that, you know? And so I didn't know how to handle it, but I, I, I just, I guess I realized that once all my siblings were married, my youngest one in particular, and then I felt like I needed to start living my life. And that's that was really the catalyst. And yeah, it was hell, dude. Didn't like it. But uh, I also now look at it. And think that's what makes me empathetic to all people because I know what it's like to be a right-wing conservative who hates the fact that he's gay. Yeah. So I lived in both camps. I still do in one sense, you know. I so I, I don't I don't I don't go and look at LGBTQ people as my friend or my enemy. I just look at them as being individual people that I love. And the same thing with people on the right-wing side. I'm um, I'm not going doing all this right-wing stuff with you, but I love you. And I agree with you on some of the stuff, but just I do with LGBTQ people. I agree with some of it and disagree with some of it. And I'm happy that's a place I like to be. Yeah. No, and um, you probably have you have that, that empathy towards them, um, mm -hmm. that understanding. Um, and I was going to ask a question. Um, I think it's just, it's just slipped my mind. I'll come back to it. I, I forgot mm -hmm. the question I was going to ask, but 
how you, why are you now in your faith and with regards to your to your sexuality would would you be of the belief that you know it's still a sin um you know christians might point to certain verses in the bible or do you believe you know god's made me this way do you believe that um you would be okay in your faith or your walk with god if you were to have a uh, romantic intimate relationship with a man talk about you know sort of where you are in terms of that yeah yeah so people ask me are you going to date someone are you no, no, it's honestly, I am so focused on, I'm laser focused on what I'm doing that it, it, I don't really want any um, distractions. Although, you know, so like I, I talked to some of my friends, my old buddies, and I'm talking to them on Zoom and I got like three or four rug rats running around making all this noise and all these kids. It's like, and you can just tell, you can look in their eyes like, oh, <laughs> like they're so worn out. I'm like, man, I feel bad for you. How do you even function? You know, there's no rest for you. And I'm like, man, I'm so glad I, I'm not, tied down like that right so that's kind of how i looked at it and that's maybe because at this point in my life i don't want to be right in one sense i look at it as being tied down this significant other is less so than of course if you have kids that's that's another added thing that kind of keeps you from being able to do the things you'd want to do go to places you want to go because you have other responsibilities it's fine you know i honor that but for me i'm not wired hard, hardwired to do that it's like i need i need total freedom and independence i'm libertarian i'm highly individualistic um, I just don't like anybody really telling me what to do. Not that I'm trying to rebel against authority. I just think like, well, who are you to say that I'm supposed to do something? Um, and why, what, what, why can't I do it? You know, I, so I have to think of the reasons, like when somebody says, don't go there, or well, guess what I'm doing? I'm going there. You know, that's kind of how I'm hardwired. So like, I don't follow the typical narrative of what you're supposed to do with like, I recognize that I would lead a different life than my siblings did because I have everything mapped out. It's really nice being a white middle-class, um, heterosexual person. Because you pretty much just have everything laid out for you. Yeah. I mean, you get married, or you go to school maybe, or you get married and you have kids and get a nice job, live in your nice middle-class home, you get your two-car garage, you get the two and a half kids and a dog, you get, and then, then, then you, then you retire and then you, uh, then, then, then you regress where your kids are now starting to take care of you. And you like, it's like you have this whole, like this whole thing that was all mapped out. And I realized I wasn't going to follow that pattern. I don't know why I'm uh, talking so long on this, but I, I guess what it's what I'm trying to say is, is that I just never thought of myself being necessarily tied down to somebody. Not that I'm saying that that's a bad thing, but so I'm going into this like, I don't know. I was told not to make any plans. So I'm not going to make any plans. Maybe something will happen. Now, whether I think it's a sin or not, I think, man, between you and God, I honestly don't, I don't get it. This is why I really, I honestly genuinely don't get it. I don't know how you could be somebody who regularly practices the sin of gluttony, which is the food that you eat is talked more about in the Bible than who you sleep with. And why you don't follow kosher, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but more importantly, the Bible makes it very clear that gluttony is a sin. And gluttony is merely overeating, mm. eating too much food. Yeah. And I'm like, I go to these churches and everybody's eating too much food. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. And I'm like, why, why would you, how could you possibly judge another person? 
Yeah. When you're you're doing just as more in one sense even more of a grievous sin because it seemed that the Bible was extraordinarily, extraordinarily concerned about what you ate. It spends a lot of time talking about the food you eat. And it's like it doesn't get into detail about like it, there's not like chapter after chapter after chapter about sexuality and who you can sleep with. It it, it has a few verses. But man, they ain't cook no the bacon double cheeseburger is one of the greatest abominations that's ever seen that this world has ever seen according to kosher theology so you know the kosher law so that 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 was always been to me the great disconnect yeah that on one hand you could be literally killing yourself with the food you're eating and then go after people for loving somebody of the same sex that just yeah maybe maybe they take care of themselves and they're good neighbors and they look out for people and and they i'm not saying this is not about works but it's just like you could see like okay like they're actually kind of doing god's work and you got the Christian who's doing the gossiping, the backstabbing, eating junk food, uh, all these things. And I'm like, how in the world could you ever say a crossword about somebody that's different than you, especially when it comes to their sexuality? It doesn't make any sense. So I look at it this way. And then then I say, okay, I'll follow all the rules as it relies to um, homosexuality within the Bible. If you're willing to follow all the rules as it applies to heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you, you want to do that? Such a good point. Yeah. Like, where is the tent in your backyard where your wife is supposed to be menstruating in? Like, <laughs> I mean, weird stuff, man. Like, like, uh, in, in, you know, look at, look, at, uh, look at the Apostle Paul, what he says about marriage. He'd rather you not get yeah, married. Single. Yeah. It's better you be single. But if you're so horny and you just have, you, <laughs> you, you absolutely have to have sex, then you get married. Who follows that? Yeah, isn't that the worst advice you could possibly give for hetero for heterosexuality? Yeah, if if you if you have all this lust in you, then you get married. I mean, what what biblical marriage counselors, Christian marriage counselors, are giving Paul's advice about marriage? But yet, that's Paul's advice about marriage. I was told by um, a member of the state presidency. Whenever I was going home for my mission, he said to me and my companion, because I think he was a counselor or therapist and he's counseled a lot of uh, young people young couples and he said when you go home from your mission because typically return missionaries get married quite quickly um, yep. maybe multiple motivations but definitely sexual relations is probably one mm-hmm. they don't want to make a mistake and yep. the they can get married the sooner they can have sex and he said don't get married just so you can have sex because there's yep. a lot of marriages that go wrong you know doing it that way yep. and again what you were sharing you're you're so right like god is the ultimate judge like we shouldn't judge others there's so many times where jesus says you know why do you consider is it the moat in your brother's eye but consider the beam in your own eye and like when you look at the teachings and also the example of jesus like i love his parable the parable of the um pharisee and the tax collector and the pharisee was boasting in his righteousness and he was pretty much judging uh the tax collector well i'm glad i'm not like him you know a sinner and but it was the tax collector who humbly confessed his sins like i'm a sinner have mercy on me and jesus said in the parable he's the one that went home right and forgiven and justified before god not that pharisee that boasted in his um own righteousness and when you look Jesus' example, like he reached out and ministered and loved those who were considered sinners, those who were, you know, the lepers, those who were 
second death and who were considered um you know lesser in society lesser in righteousness and to me i can't see the jesus of the new testament um judging or marginalizing uh those in the lgbt community that often occurs in christian churches and that has uh occurred and still does maybe in some ways in the lds church so that those are my personal thoughts on it if it isn't mm. sin we're all sinners we all ultimately um are looking to god for mercy and there needs to be less judgment and more love yeah. and tolerance and understanding yeah yeah and i think love tolerance and understanding i don't I don't use the word affirming only because I don't want to go to somebody and say, you have to affirm me. I say, that's a choice that between you and God of what you how, that you need to make in regards to how you're going to proceed with these things. I don't want to go to people and say, you have, I, but I do say you need to be tolerant, yes. you know, and open and empathetic. And maybe one day you will be affirming, but I'm not going to go to you and say, you have to be, because I feel that's respect for people. Yeah beliefs um, yeah i could say okay i understand why you think marriage is between one man and one woman that was what barack obama believed not that long ago yeah. so i i can't go now and say you're a bigot because you, you're you're basically saying the exact same thing that barack obama got elected as president i'm not doing that okay awesome um <laughs> so let's talk about one of the best moments of your youtube channel um yeah. you can talk about any other highs or any yeah. cool things but i think the joseph smith photo uh, I think you said that's been probably, it, it just took off, uh, it exploded yeah. in the views. Um, it was really big in social media. What, was it around a month ago? No, I can't even remember. Yeah, month it's, been, it's been a month, about a month and a half now. It's not that long ago. It feels like forever ago. I know. Um, but why don't you talk to us about, um, you know, everything that was going on. Yeah. How in such a quick period of time you got yeah. John Hamer on yep. uh, and talk about the, the Joseph Smith photo. Take it away. There he is. There, there he is, Joseph Smith. So before I tell that, I want to I want to tell a prelude to that story because this is find so interesting. Was um, my channel has less than 100 subscribers, and I get in touch with Mark Staker, the Church Historian's Office, and he wrote this book about Tunbridge Tunbridge Farm, which is the farm that they had that Joseph Smith Senior owned and operated in the 1890s in Vermont. And he's doing excavative excavating, and they didn't they they had theories about what they were growing at the time, but they didn't know what crops they were growing at the time that they, they, they surmised maybe what it was, but they weren't sure. So he goes to me and said, I'd like, why don't, I, they're going to run this stuff through, uh, oh, I forget, it's a certain machine that's it's escaping me. And uh, it's going to be able to um, identify, help us identify what's in the, the spores of what they were growing at the time. So they're able to dig down to the surface, find these, this, these spores or whatever. And that would identify what Joseph Smith Sr. was planting at the time that they lived there. Now, this sounds all really technical and obscure, but it's not because he said, I'll come on your program, you interview me, and then I'll come back on and we'll give the results. So all summer long, I'm waiting. We thought next week, the results. And we kept on getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, two months later, he comes on the program. He gives the results to the world for the first time saying that, yes, they grew hops. That was what they grew in, in Vermont. So... That's history. Like literally for the first time, somebody from the church historian's office comes. He could go on any, you could go to Deseret News. He could go to any podcaster he wants. He comes on this little evangelical that has hardly any subscribers and broke news. Now, that's not the first time that's happened. But then I would have never seen this coming in that for folks who, for the very few of you who are watching this program who are not aware of any of this, um, 
on a Thursday, this, the news broke that they they believe they identified a daguerreotype uh, of Joseph Smith. In other words, a photograph, uh, early photograph of Joseph Smith, early in the sense that this is a relatively new technology at the time. And uh, it was identified. <clears throat> and that was a Thursday. And now by Friday, I'm taping the interview. Now the question is, how does this happen, right? Because it's a remarkable story. Well, it all starts from the very beginning because the very first group that I reached out to was the Community of Christ. And they were doing this book club about the biography of Joseph Smith III. I'd read this book. I checked it out of the library like 15 years before. I love Joseph Smith III. I think he's a cool dude. And uh, I see this thing on Reddit. I totally, I sign up for it. I totally forget about it. And then I get this notice. Oh, I'm going to hop on now. I'm nervous because I never talked to really any, talk to anybody that's in the restoration. And I'm like, Hi. I'm your evangelical Linton Loper. I just want to say on behalf of all that we've been doing for the last 200 years to you guys, I want to apologize. <laughs> and they I, immediately, the group, and there was like 100 people on the Zoom call every week. Well, the people who were facilitating this conversation were members of the church historian's office uh, history team at the Community of Christ. In particular, the two that I uh, that stick out the most is Locke McKay, Lachlan McKay, and Barbara Walden. Now, I, I knew who Locke was because he was, he's was he been on, I believe he's been on Mormon Stories, but he's also he's been on Gospel Tangents. And he's a direct descendant of Joseph Smith. He's an apostle in the church, and he serves in the church history team. So I, the very first prominent person that I actually met in this whole endeavor was Locke. Wow. Before I met Richard Bushman, before I'm talking to John DeLynn, before I'm talking to Sandra Tanner, before I'm talking to Dan Vogel, I have a relationship with Locke. Now, I also then reach out to John Hamer a few months later and ask him to come on my program. We do this fantastic interview with John Hamer. He loved it. He, he felt it was one of the best interviews he's ever done. And he's been on some of the big programs, right? So, so I just stay in touch with John Hamer. And every once in a while, I'll email Locke about maybe coming on, and I don't hear back from him, or maybe you do. And I just, I just kind of periodically reach out to Locke. Well, it's Thursday night, and I'm supposed to interview Noah Van Skiver Friday morning for my Friday slot. I get a message from Noah saying, and Noah wrote the uh, graphic novel of Joseph Smith that just came out. And Noah says, you know what? My babysitter canceled out on me. I won't be able to tape Friday morning. So it's Thursday night. It's 9 o'clock. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what I should do. Well, one of my friends, Reed Russell, I think that's his name. He's based in Independence. He said, you ought to see about getting those guys on your program. Oh, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Didn't think anything of it. And then my cancellation happens. So here it's 9 o'clock. I'm like, I'm going to message John Hamer and see if he, if maybe he can get me lock on. Like, see if they, him and Locke could come on my program. So I have a relationship with John, and he'd be a good person to have on because he's a history buff and all that. He said, let me get back to you, um, because Locke is being inundated for interview requests to go on different podcasts. But he said, I think yours would be the best one for him to go on. I'm like, okay. So he re so I, literally, this is all last-minute stuff. If that cancellation doesn't happen the, that for the next day, maybe that thought doesn't cross my mind to get these on my show. So I'm like... Okay, cool. Awesome. Right. So I hear from John the next morning. He's like, oh, I'm in touch with them. I'm trying to make this work. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm like this might really happen. And then he messages me and says, you know what? We're both so swamped today. We're just not going to be able to make it happen. I'm like, okay. And he even said, I feel so bad about this, Steve, because this could be such a big deal for your channel because it's hot. It's like the big news. It's, it's trending. It he said it would be like a, such a big deal to have this happen. But I was like, okay, but you know, 
I'll figure something out. Maybe I'll just tape a five minute segment or I don't know. I don't know. I'll figure out something I'm going to put on Friday night. Cause I still didn't have any material for that evening. So I'm like, okay. All right. And then I'm talking to Josh Gailey of the church of Jesus Christ. And, uh, we we're talking about the photograph and, um, and Josh Gailey is an evangelist with the Church of Jesus Christ. His father is the president of the church. So I'm good friends with, with, uh, with him. And I I'm going to meet his father soon down the road. And we're talking about it. I hear my phone ding. And I was like, I heard a ding. And I'm like, I'm talking to Josh for another 10 minutes. And something's like, you know what? I think I need to check out what that ding was. So I look. It's Facebook Messenger. It's John Hamer saying, all right, Steve, lock and tape tonight. I'm like, cool. So this is like 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. So like, okay, so we're on. Yes, this evening. Well, I'm like, okay, lock central time. So it's probably going to be like probably seven, six, seven Eastern time earliest. So I'm I'm in touch. I'm not hearing anything, but I'm assuming it's a, it's a go. So I'm like, okay, I need to tape something to tell people, get ready. So I go and I tape a, I tape a five minutes. I mean, folks, get ready. Something big is going to come down. I'm, I'm going to release an interview tonight that's going to, about the Justice photo, it's going to be a big deal. I'm very excited. And I even said at the time, I said, you know, and I just want to thank all of those of you who've been with me on the ride, because I know this is going to be a big thing for the channel, mm -hmm. something along those lines. I post that at 7.45 p.m. Eastern time, all right? I still haven't heard anything. I still don't have the, the interview scheduled. I'm sitting there like, boy, I sure took a risk, but I thought, no, I got I to gotta build something here, because I typically release something at 6, and nothing's been released. I better put it out there why I haven't released anything yet, and stay tuned. So I'm sitting there and it's like, okay, about a half hour goes by and nothing. And then at 8.20, I remember these so well, because it's and I'm glad I'm saying this because this documents the story too. Is at 8.20, I got a ding from John. He said, he'll be ready at 8.30. So I'm like, okay. So I get everything set up. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. So I have all, the studios all set up, all ready to go. And I'm like, okay. And then 8.30, boom, there's Locke. There's John Hamer. 8.35, we start filming. We talk for 45. I hadn't even read the paper. I just was going by what I was hearing on social media. My observations, because I kind of thought maybe it was him because of the hairline, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But I'm going into, like, I really don't know. And so I, so I, I tape it. I release it at 10.15 that night. It goes live, and it explodes. Late on a Friday night, which is kind of a dead time to release stuff, it explodes. Wow. And I just remember the moment as I'm watching this and Locke is going through and he's showing, I'll show you exactly what really kind of sold me on this thing. I think it's in here. If not, no big deal. But what sold me was... I'll put a link in the description for people to, to watch that video if they... Yeah, please do. It, it's, 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 yeah, okay. So what did it was he showed me these images and as he's, as he's, as he's doing the, on the mouth... Yeah, as he's doing on the side of the mouth, the big, the big side, you know, that's that's like big time like that. And I'm looking at that precisely, and then I'm matching it up with the painting, and I see the same bump, I see that same detail, I see the same lips, I see everything really come into focus. So people are, I'm, as I'm interviewing them, I'm having this moment where I'm realizing, like, this is Joseph Smith. Whoa. How exciting to be part of that, part of the story. You know, like to be the very first on-camera interview of the people. You know, I get some idiots on, get some idiots on Facebook. Like, what's that? what's a big deal about? I'm like, there's some there's a couple haters of mine out there. There's that, always haters. It's so weird. It's like how how could you call yourself? He's this person's involved in a Mormon historians group, and he doesn't understand the significance of this interview. I mean, 
what, what do you do with these people? I don't know. Either way, they're small, very small, small-minded people. Um, yeah, and I don't get it because it doesn't, whether no, it's a, a genuine photo yeah. of him or not, it doesn't yeah. really change if he's a prophet. Yeah. Or it's not. still a story. It's still interesting. Just that, yeah. you know, And it's just weird because I'm like, you know, how, how is it that, but you know what, I've wasted enough time talking about this guy, so I'm not even saying anything more about him. But either way, um, so uh, the next thing you know, it just explodes. And I, it's like, I get to a thousand views, like, real quick. I mean, I'm just like, blown. I mean, I think that I wake up the next morning and it's like, like, like two or 3,000 views. I'm like, I mean, these are big numbers for a small channel, you know? And it just keeps on growing and blowing up. And now it's over 16,000 views. It's still being watched every minute of every day. Oh. Right now, at this moment, it's being watched. And it's it's just remarkable. And then to hear feedback from people. And then... um it was just a fun story. I want, I've been wanting to tell that story. And I even thought like, I remember the Monday after this whole thing happened, I'm like, why isn't it, where's the Steve Feinecker that's going to reach out to me and with 50 subscribers and interview me? Because like, I couldn't, like a year ago, I, if this story broke a year ago, I knew Locker, I knew John, but they're not going to go on my channel. Yeah. They're going to, because it's just too small. But, but, but maybe I could get John Hamer to come on and say, what was it like, you know, John, or, or, or no, what I would do is I would get the guy on who got them on. You know, like, hey, what was it like to talk to these guys? That was that's my whole strategy of how I tried to build a channel. It's like I also like to talk about the inside stuff. This is interesting stuff, yeah. the background, you know, and uh, yeah. So it was, it's pretty a remarkable ride. It's uh, very exciting. The community. Just think about this. This is the most beautiful story about this. Is that on a Thursday, in this obscure journal based out of Independence, Missouri, that nobody's ever heard of, breaks probably. The only story that's going to be bigger than this is if they find the lost 116 pages. So second only to finding the lost 116 pages, finding a photograph of Joseph Smith is a big deal. So you have this small church in Independence, Missouri, this small journal that breaks the story. And then within 24 hours, you have this small little YouTuber who's an evangelical be the very first interview. And we, I mean, think about this, these tiny, completely controlled the narrative and of course, we're in the shadow of this big church that's one of the wealthiest, most powerful churches in the world. And this little journal, this little church, and this little YouTube channel, literally, like, we were the only place you could go to get the information. And it wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't None. foreseen. It all just came together. And yeah. I listened to the interview. If I remember them right, they think it's their pretty much 90 some percent sure that it's yeah yep. so it's pretty much uh authentic that it is yep this is a, a photograph of joseph smith in 1844 so it would have been uh towards the end of his life yeah there's a couple months before that's what they're dating it about maybe march or april of 1844 as i recall and some people would have given the pushback that joseph smith probably has a bigger nose than what um it looks like in that photo. Uh, I, I know John Hamer discussed that. Uh, do you remember offhand what sort of like their response was to... Yeah, well, so so it was interesting because in one sense, John Hamer had him ha had him looking... Actually, it's so funny because a, a lot of people don't like it because Joseph Smith is not as attractive to them as they, in their mind, of what he was supposed to look like. And John Hamer, he actually had a a view of Joseph Smith looking less attractive than this guy. So because of, he was going by with the side angles, with the nose, the way it stuck out and stuff like that. So he had the side profile, but it's all camera angles. So if I'm down like this, my nose looks different than if it's like this, you know, so all, everywhere you're at the camera. So you can only, 
if it's straight on, if it's off a degree or whatever, your your nose is going to look different. Mm-hmm. But it's it's look, I'm, I'm I don't take sides in this, but I, I I'm. Maybe by the time this interview airs, you'll have already. Well, I have scheduled for tonight, so today is a Friday. I still have to schedule it, by the way, and I got to give it a title. But I got an expert for um, another image expert who is uh, going to give his um, reasonings, uh, his 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 thoughts on what he thinks about the photograph. But I get contacted by somebody out of the blue, and I can't give too many details. But I was presented something that nobody else has seen and i look at it and i'm like i had that second moment where i went from like 95 percent sure to him or 99 percent sure to basically 100 percent sure it's him because it's another line of evidence that i saw that i was like and so this guy's going to come on my program now too and so if this if if he comes on because it's going to probably be a few weeks it's literally in my mind it's going to re it's going to change the way mormon history they're going to rewrite or have to rewrite parts of mormon history and to be privy to that with this channel to be the breaking news for the pollen thing for this thing for having original research presented on my show for the very first time to have being cited in books now being uh, acknowledged in p- papers and journals um being finding my citations now on wikipedia dealing with mormonism where people are referencing the uh, including the bushman interview i i mean if you go to the book of mormon page on wikipedia my channel is referenced you know as as a source so now it's become a trusted source that people can go to because it's an unbiased channel that genuinely just wants to have a conversation i i put my my disbelief to the side and I'm like, if Denver Snuffer is going to tell me about having his encounter for Jesus, I'm not going to poo-poo it. I'm going to say, what do you look like? What do you say? Yeah. Give me the circumstances. That's what I find to be more interesting, is tell, having Denver Snuffer tell his story. And then Denver Snuffer comes on my program. Now, usually, I don't know if you watch any interviews with Denver Snuffer. Uh-huh. But, okay, so almost at the end of them, inevitably, he always says, well, that was a waste of time, or... Well, I'll never do that again. He kind of just has this like little dig about the interview. Uh, he did it with Sean McCraney. He did it with uh, Gospel Tangents, um, where he kind of just makes a joke about, well, I'll never do that again. Or this was really hard, you know. And I was like, is he going to do that for mine? And as I'm watching this interview and as he's telling me things, and then he goes and he starts, I start asking him questions. And he starts talking about things he's never talked about before. Right? A vision that he had, an encounter with Jesus. And I start asking him questions. I start probing and asking more and asking more. And then he tells me stuff that Jesus said. Well, that's literally added to, adding to the canon of the snuff of that movement, the remnant, independent remnant movement, restorationist remnant movement that, that, that Denver's affiliated with. That every time he gives out like something like that, that becomes canonized. And he even asked, can I put your episode in a month or two in the Restoration Archives for our group? I said, sure. So... Um, and then at the very end of the interview, he did something very different that I've never seen him do on any other interview. And I've watched most of them. He did not go and say, boy, I was a waste of time. Or, man, I'm never doing that again. He goes to me and he says, the reason why I told you the things that I talked about today was because you have the right spirit. I was like, oh, thank you, Denver. And uh, closed the interview, shut it off. I'm, I'm about ready to say thank you. And he just clicks off because he's a very guarded person right? right but but he essentially 
said, Steve's an all right guy. And if you are part of my movement, you can, you, you can trust this guy, or this is somebody who's got the right spirit. Now, this is the thing that makes it so different is that every single branch of the restoration from the largest to the most obscure, they know that they're going to be treated with respect because they've already been on my program. I've had the largest and I've had the smallest basically come on my program and they've been treated with respect. And I genuinely want to hear their story. And to me, that's what it's all about. Building relationships, friendships, talking to people, um, getting to know them, you know, um, and that's so important to me uh, because, you know, like I said, we all look through class darkly, dude. And, you know, and this is the other thing too. I've had representatives from just about every single branch within the restoration who said the same thing to me that Denver Snuffer said. I like your spirit, or I believe the Holy Spirit is operating through you. I've had I've had people come to me and say, I see the countenance of Christ in you. Um, I've had people say, I believe that you're going to play a role in bringing forth Zion. And this is all branches of the restoration. And again, this is just supposed to be some stupid scholarly secular program. We talk about the books. I do book reviews of the books, and maybe I'll get an author on now and then. And now it's become like people are being spiritually fed. And then to double back to Mormon stories, I go to Sunstone, right? And I get to meet a lot of people now. So I, I, I basically just do the academic conferences, right? So I, this is the first time I'm doing just for something that a lot of regular folk would be at. So I go to Sunstone last month. I get two responses from people. I get the bros, you know, guys in their 20s and 30s, like, dude, so awesome. Love your show. Can I get a selfie with you? I'm like, yeah, here's a button. Oh, cool. Thank you for the button, man. You're so cool. I really love your program. One of them said, I get, I just came here just to meet you. I'm like, wow, that's awesome, you know? So I'm getting all these cool cool dudes around your age, a little bit older, coming up to me, think I'm cool. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm like, I'm geeking out. They're geeking out, and they think I'm cool, and I think that's kind of awesome. And I think they're cool, too. They're awesome. All my fans are awesome. That's awesome. And then I have another group come to me. And these are more middle-aged women in their 40s and 50s. And they walk up to me and they say, my shelf just broke about a year ago. And I'm trying to put the pieces back together. And I don't know if I believe in God or not anymore. But I watch your channel because it, it gives me a place where I think I can may, maybe find my way back to God. Wow. Well, that's very similar to the letters I was so The emails I was getting was from basically middle-aged women telling me the same thing that they get a spiritual so that, that, that they're being spiritually fed by me now i'm not let's get this again that goes back well what did sean mccraney say you're out of ministry i don't have a ministry yeah you're gonna have a ministry the next thing you know like I, i've had people say you're you're my sunday service i just turn on your channel and just listen to your videos on sunday you know that's that's profound and different and unexpected but also kind of all seems to make sense in the context of everything that's happened. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. of course. Look, I spoke in tongues. I, I've prophesied. Uh, I've, 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 I've had the gifts of the spirit operational in my life. Growing up as a kid, this was very common. So for me, it's like, man, I just hopped into this world. I'm like, hey, I've been here. I'm, 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 I'm digging this. I can handle this. And that's what makes me so much different than these other Christians who have this agenda. And this is the weirdest thing of them all. These are Calvinists. Everything's predestined, but yet they think they have to go witness to Mormons, and they're going to go, or they're going to go after me for not witnessing. I'm like, well, uh, if it's all predestined anyhow, then if it's not predestined, and we actually have a role to play, and it's not about pushing people out of the kingdom, 
like they they're about because really Calvinists all they're doing is they're basically just trying to say no you're you're not it you're not it okay you can come in because you you know we're gonna have communion with you because you believe blah 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 and you follow this pattern and the rest of you know, damn you can all go to hell because that's God's love and God's justice well if it's not that and it's about us as human beings recognizing the fact that we are all image bearers and we're all created in his image and that every single human life has merit and is deserving of respect and integrity. And if we are all indeed part of him in his image, and I use him because I'm a man and just what I use, and I can't break that, but that's fine. I don't care. I'm just going to say it. But if we're all made in his image, then we should look at each other different because that makes us, in one sense, brothers and sisters in the human community. Spiritually, we have the divine spark, which I believe is what happened when our ancestors realized there was something more to it than just being animals. And that then gives us a connection to those very first humans. And now we're connected to them. And we're connected to each other. And while we're just all on this journey together, and we're here to love each other. And I'm not here to go and say, you got to do this. You got to follow this. Religion. Just love one another. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Learn to forgive. And I'm not enforcing. I don't, you know, I'm not going to say you have to forgive somebody who's done wrong to you. I'll never impose that on you. But recognize the healing power of forgiveness. And being able to love somebody who's on the other side of the street that has their protest signs and you got your protest signs. You need to be able to put down that protest sign if you see somebody over there, maybe an old friend of yours. You walk around in the middle of that street and you give each other a hug and love each other. Okay? That's what it's all about. So let's look at it this way. Amen. If we're not predestined, to me, this is the way we need to go. Yeah. If there is no God, this is the way to go. Yeah. If God is as the atheists believe him to be and, the Cal and, and your hardcore Calvinists believe him to be, then none of this even matters. <laughs> so I I kind of look at it from this way. It's like, no, I'm going to play an active participant. I'm going to show love. I'm going to demonstrate the love of Christ in my life towards other people. I'm going to learn to continue to grow in him and allow him to grow in me and just to show love towards other people. And, uh, you know, if I'm up at the throne, the judgment throne, that's as I say, I just showed the love of Christ in my life. That's all I tried to do. And you put me through a lot, but I still love you. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the, the point being is, is you know, that's that's how I see it, man. I don't see how it could go either way, any other way. And that, that resonates so much with me. I recently did a video on my channel, and it was, I think, entitled Labels, Divisions, and Love. And I just talked about how in our society, um, even in the church between critics, apologists, ex-Mormons, Mormons, uh, Christian, you know, agnostic, atheist, there's so much division, there's, there can be so much attack, there's not that empathy, there's not that respect, and there's not that love. And even if you believe we're all just human beings, or if you believe that we're children of God made in His image, um, I think, you know, it, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon that says that there is no contention or divisions among the people because of the love of God that was in their hearts and the love they had for each other. And, and that's what Jesus taught, like to love, to love each other. And that will help to take away all those divisions. And at the end of the day, 
even if we believe different things, if we are striving our best to love God, to love our fellow man, um, it seems like really that's what it's, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It is. You know, and this reminds me of a conversation I had with Dan Vogel, because him and I, I was like, one day it was a Saturday morning and we just start talking for like three hours. And I'm like, Dan, this is the interview. Let's just you and I sit in front of the camera and chat. He's like, okay. So a few days later we chatted. But one of the things he said to me off camera was like, I was telling him about my spiritual experiences. And he says, Steve, and Dan, I know you're cool. You're going to be fine with this because it's something you would say in public. And I meant to say it on Mormon stories. So there's another thing. And Dan goes me, and I'm telling him like my experiences I'm having. Steve, basically all you've done is you've uh, externalized something that's internal. You know, that's how he's seeing it. Like, I'm like, and of course, I can't believe I didn't say it at the time because I thought about it later. So I'm going to say it now. He says, yeah, you've externalized something that's internal. And I'll be like, the kingdom of God is within you. <laughs> that's how I see it. Uh, that that's There's truth there. Yeah. And if the kingdom of God is within you, then you can go about building the Zionic kingdom, building a better place, better place to the world. And, uh, you know, look at yourself. I'm an image bearer and they're an image bearer and they have the same fears and concerns in life as maybe I do. And maybe I don't agree with them, but I can still love them and they can love me and I'm going to make an effort to love them. And maybe they'll love me or whatever. Yeah. Uh, why, why don't you give it a shot, man? Yeah. There needs to be more understanding. You know, we're all human beings. We all have needs. We all have emotions. We all desire to be good. We want to find meaning and there should be. That, that love and understanding towards each other and especially if you're a Christian or if you're a Mormon and you believe that we're all you know creating God's image that we're his his children that we should love them even more even if they have different beliefs or have different political views or they identify as LGBT or if they've left the church that we shouldn't be demonizing and uh, causing these divisions because I don't believe that's what Christ stood for mm. I'd like to ask a couple of questions, including oh, sure. about your, your faith now. Yeah. Um, you've kind of alluded to this, but what, how would you describe your faith uh, now as opposed to maybe when you were an evangelical Christian, you know, for the first 30, how many years it was of your life? Maybe your beliefs in God and Jesus uh, in Christianity. Um, talk a little bit about that. And then I'd also like to hear what sort of like your thoughts on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the church you know what are your sort of beliefs or your sort of conclusions on that okay well i i mean you know as i you know of course as i left faith atheist i throw out all everything now i'm coming back into christianity with a much more different view of god my conversations with him are much different as well um okay partly because i don't i felt much more closer connected to him when i was a real real like hardcore believer i talked with him all the time I don't talk to him like that anymore, and I don't know if I can because of everything that I've been through. But I'm 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 more about just waiting to hear from him if he has something to, that I think he operates through my gut. I think he 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 gives me images of what I'm saying. He hasn't really communicated with me. I almost feel like all right, Steve. These are the principles, the operating principles you're going to operate under, and then just go forth, and that's what happened, and then it exploded. You know, so I think that the Lord's hands involved in this. So I'm like, okay, what is my theology now? Right? Like I, I've rejected my Calvinism uh, of my past. I'm, I'm skeptical about a lot of these spiritual manifestations that people have within the charismatic Pentecostal movement. You know, I went to a, a, a revival service a couple weeks ago. It was on a weeknight. I went on there on Tuesday. They had a Monday, Tuesday services. Monday night, they baptized 180 people. 
And uh, and then and I think they're going to have a similar amount the next night. And I'm sitting there watching this. And I'm like, I just don't know if this is real. Hmm. You know, I'm just I'm I'm skeptical. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm I'm sat in here for 45 minutes. I just want to say, okay, do I feel the spirit? Do I feel something here? Because most of the time when I go to church, I don't feel anything. That's what made the Church of Jesus Christ experience so remarkable. Was I felt something, I felt something that I hadn't felt in a long, long, long time, and um, in a service. So I'm like, okay, what does this mean? Now, do we go by feelings? I don't. I mean, in one sense, I, I don't. I try to question them and try to be subjective. I don't want to be subjective in one sense, right? I want to make sure that am I just being manipulated or whatever. That's why I made a point to bring my mom and other Christians to that service because I wanted to know, okay, do you think the anointing is here, right? And then they all say, yeah, there's the anointing here. And so I'm like, okay, so I know it's not just me. I can bring any Christian who's a charismatic or a Pentecostal, and they can sit in that service, and I think they'll feel at home, all right? So now, so now that's 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 kind of my epistemology now, right? You know, if I <laughs> let's go to church service, check it out. You feel the spirit, okay? That's probably where he's at. Okay, that's that's kind of how I look at from that perspective. And, there, and I know what it, the spirit feels like, and I know what it's not, because most of the time I don't feel it. Yeah. So maybe I'm maybe that's one thing. I go by, do I feel the Holy Spirit? Do I see the fruits of the spirit operational in this church and in this individual? So now then the question goes like, okay, John DeLynn, why not, okay, why don't you call me a Christian or whatever? You know, he's like going on, so we're having this conversation. And I'm like, you know, John, that's not my place. Because first of all, we didn't even, we were, we were called Christians by other people. So even to use the word Christian is not necessarily an accurate thing. Um to me, it's like everybody's on a journey, right? And I think we're all at different places. I kind of look at it from the perspective that God, because he transcends space and time and everything, he's eternal, that he doesn't see us where we're at, but he sees us as our completed selves. That's how he sees us. So he doesn't, he didn't see me as an atheist who sleeps around, gets drunk every night. He saw me in my completed form the whole time. <laughs> he has the eternal perspective. Yes. So I'm like, man, John, I, I, I look at it this way. I was like, man, God's seeing you in your completed form. All I can say is the Lord, I feel the Lord wants you to be a minister. And I even told John when we have lunch, I said, I, I feel the Lord's going to find, a, you're going to find a way back. Not necessarily to reduce to Jesus Christ, but back to having something, another like a, a, a faith, a relational faith. Okay, yeah. that's all I'm all about. Don't worry about what church you go to. Don't worry about um, getting baptized. Really, don't worry about checking any boxes. Just go to Him and say, Lord Jesus, you know I want you in my life, and I want you to come into my life, and I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for me on the cross. And I believe that you resurrected so that you, you defeated death and you defeated Satan. You are victorious and I'm one of your children. And if you acknowledge that and have Jesus part of me, your Lord and Savior in your life, I don't really care what you believe about the Trinity. I don't care what building you go to. I don't care if you believe in hell or you don't believe in hell. I don't, I don't, just don't care about any of that stuff. It's all about you having relationships. So my Christianity is deeply personal highly libertarian, <laughs> um, just, just about having a personal relationship and cut out the middleman, right? So now the question you have for me is, do you have a follow-up or do you want me to talk do, about the Book of Mormon? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have a comment, then I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Um, the, comment, uh, the thought I have is when I think about Jesus and I think about his ministry and his teachings, Jesus seemed less concerned, in my opinion, about the rights 
the theological beliefs or doctrine, they seem more concerned about the right heart and the right relationship uh, with God and to others. I remember I listened to this near-death experience. I went through a phase where I was listening to so many afterlife mm-hmm. near-death experiences. This was whenever I'd left the church and was trying to figure yeah. out what do I believe. Some, some of them were weird. Some of them, I was like, I don't know, these people seem a bit out there, a bit crazy. But there was one guy who was an atheist and he had a near-death experience. can't remember exactly what it was, but he went to this afterlife. He described this dark, uh, I think he described it as a hellish place, um, which I find that part a little bit disturbing. But he, So he was an atheist, but he was like, there's an afterlife. And he went to church when he was a little boy and he said the only prayer he knew was a little song about Jesus. And he said that he started singing that song and then Jesus came, stretched forth his arm uh, and took him to his presence. And he described Jesus being this being of love, of light, um, you know, that he just knew him and loved him so much. Uh, but Jesus, uh, according to his experience, told him that he needed to sort of like change his life. You know, he was living quite a selfish, sinful life. and that he needed to go back to earth, his time wasn't over, and that he needed to tell people about Jesus, to follow Jesus, to do good on earth, um, and to change his ways. And so much of his um, his story seemed really sincere and heartfelt. Uh, whether or not it's true or not, that was his experience. But at the end, he asked Jesus, uh, which, which church or which religion should I join? And my ears perked up and I was like, what's Jesus going to say? Of course he's say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Or will he say, you know, the, you know, be a Calvinist or, you know, what would yeah. he say? And uh, he said that Jesus turned and said to him, whichever religion brings you closest to me. And that sort of hit me that I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if that's really all that matters about us and our relationship with God, having the right relationship, our hearts, our faith. And I'm less concerned about being the right religion or having the right mm. doctrinal beliefs because I think we see through a glass darkly. Yep. And if I were to claim that I know exactly what the next life is going to be like, yep. really, I don't. Um, no. And I, I find that just super profound. But I want to ask you a question. If you have any comments on that, Sharon, no, that's I good. I like that. I, you're very thoughtful. I like that you're thoughtful, and this is kind of what I find is a lot of my guests are very thoughtful people, yeah. and you think about these things, right? Yeah. And I can't follow a God that's going to send you to hell. I won't follow a God that's going to send you to hell. Thank you for that. I was actually, that was going to be one of my questions, but I know what the answer is going to be. Uh, so related to that, so in your view, um, because some Christians would say as Mormons are, are going to hell, or even Jehovah Witnesses or other religions, I'm guessing that you believe that whether or not you're Mormon, Jehovah Witness, Catholic, um, do you believe that they'll that they'll be in heaven as well? Obviously, God's the judge, but in, in your yeah. view of God and what He is like as a being, His yeah. attributes. Yeah. So there's a Father Newhouse who founded the First Things magazine. Uh, he was Lutheran, then he became a, a Catholic priest, and uh, and he had, and, and I don't know if it was he wrote this or somebody wrote this in his publication, and that was, while the the church or the scriptures may not teach us that every that there's universal salvation, that means that can't be our hope. That couldn't be our prayer as Christians. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, um, because I look at it like 
Yeah, you know, see, and I, I kind of look at it like, like I remember I was talking to a Christian a few months, about six months ago, and he was explaining. He said, "No, think about it, Steve. Like, you got like a billion Catholics. Yeah, like all these Orthodox. You got these Protestants. He's like, that's about a third of the planet that acknowledges Jesus Christ. So he's kind of broad in his view of Christianity. He was going to heaven. And he's like, that's like a third. And I'm like, yeah, but I said, that's good. And now you got to understand, like in in baseball, America, if you're if you're uh, you're, you go into the Hall of Fame if you're a 300 hitter. So if you hit about a batting average of 300, so three out of 10 times you get a hit, three at bats. So if you get that plateau for a career, 300, bat 300, get 3,000 hits, you know, so that's you're a Hall of Famer. So, or if you get, especially you do a third, like, wow, that's you're like a superstar. So I go to him, I say, listen, I said, I don't know if what Jesus did at the cross might be good enough to get you into baseball's Hall of Fame, a third. But I think God and Jesus are bigger than that. You know, I I I I would say it's a failure if 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 it's a third, if it's only just people who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. The Bible tells us every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's right. Well, what does that mean? If you confess your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're one of His, right? And I don't think at the very end of this eternal process that we're just a, in a minuscule part of. We have a universe that's going to be around for trillions of more years. So I have no way of knowing. But to me, I don't see how this doesn't, in some sense, ultimately lead to that possibility that maybe there is some eternal punishment of some kind. But I, I honestly think that the redemption of creation started at the cross and continues to this day, and that redemption will cover the entire universe. And I believe that moment of redemption will be happening at the very end of it all. Now, if only a third of humans on planet Earth are the only people that are in heaven, and we have this vast universe with multiple civilizations and other peoples, they're all damned uh, because they didn't hear that Jesus if we have all of this going on, and basically a third, and 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 he also historically favored white people um, in this whole process as well, so you would have a disproportionately white heaven, uh, European, um, if you take historically, you know the 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 history of the church. Yeah, that just seems pretty small to me. Yeah. Answer your question. It does. It does. Uh, I want to ask you a question about John Dillon because uh, yeah. you know him personally. Yeah, friends. Um, uh, I've listened to him uh, a lot of his podcasts. Some people, I think, can idolize him a little bit. You know, he's he's a hero. He you know, stood up to the church um, and was against some of their policy. And you know, he's he's talking about issues with church history and the truth claims. On the other hand, there's uh, some very maybe extreme apologists or or members who see him as uh you know he's an apostate he's a wolf in sheep's clothing he's a deceiver yeah um you know him personally you've yeah. interacted with him you've been on his show what is your how would you describe john as a person uh very passionate very extraordinarily plugged into that world very thoughtful yes extraordinarily thoughtful person this is a person who told me we're going to do a segment and i can't give any details 
but we were going to do a segment and he told me he was doing the research and he was going to do a segment about some individuals in the church. And he said, I got so depressed because I felt so bad for them because they're put in such an impossible spot to be where they're at in their regard vis-a-vis -vis the church. He said, I got depressed and I had to stop doing the research because I felt so bad for those people. And I've talked to some of those people that he was talking about and they just tear into John. So here you have a guy. So they have this perception of John. He's this, he's that, he's a horrible, I don't, don't have anything to do with him. And here's John feeling bad for him and feels depressed and feel his heart goes out to these people and, and, and he, they don't even realize that. So a lot of the people who really hate John, John deeply cares about. That's the side people don't see and thinks about them and says, man, I want to do this segment, but I feel so bad where they're at. It makes me depressed. So that's, that's real there. See, that's, that's a real person, man. See, this is the whole thing. Like, you know, he's either, he's a demigod or he's the devil. He's put on a pedestal. He's treated like a movie star whenever I go out to dinner with him. You know, if there's a restaurant that's fairly crowded, there's inevitably going to be a few handful of people that are going to recognize him. Want to get a selfie, tell him how much he means. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt your conversation, but I tell you, John, I really, you've changed my life. And then he's got other people who hate him. And it's it's actually, in particular, progressive Mormons probably have, to have the biggest issue with him because he was viewed as a progressive Mormon for such a long time. Then he gets asked. And so that community seems to be most hostile towards him, which I, I understand the politics. There's a lot of things going on there, and that's fine. But yeah, so he's uh, thoughtful. He's extraordinarily intense. Like when he when John Dillon is like really going at it on the show, he 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 doesn't turn that off when he goes off camera. That when he's got this like cause that he thinks is really important, he's just as passionate about it off camera as he is on camera. Okay. So that's just how he's wired. So people, if he's like steamrolls you, or you honestly feel like, whoa, 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 that's just John DeLynn. He's passionate. He's not, don't take that person. Yeah. And if he doesn't return your phone call, or if he goes to you and says, hey, you ought to come on the program, and then you don't hear from him for a year, and you get pissed because, oh, you lied to me. He doesn't have any, no, at that moment that he asked you to be on this program, he really meant it. But he also has all these other things going on, and he's always putting out fires, and there's people attacking him all the time. It's like, and if you saw what I saw and, and had the conversations that I've had with him, I'm like, like, people don't hear that side of him. That's why I'd like for him to write the book, right? So he could tell his story. And, you know, John John can tell his own story. But I'm just telling you my perspective interacting with the guy. Um, I just remember the very first phone call I had with him. I said, you know, uh, I said, I just love you, John. I said, I, I love you and Jesus loves you. I was like, I'm a, for my first phone call, I just want to let you know I love you and Jesus loves you, man. I really care for you. And that's what I'm supposed to be, is just be somebody that's to encourage you and and love you. Now, I feel like with John, because of who he is, he's a celebrity. So he's almost like, for some people, it's like they get excited. They meet John. You know, like, oh. so I feel like he's a movie star. So that makes him, in one sense, inaccessible. And then you have the other people who hate him. So that makes him inaccessible. So neither one of these groups really get to know him, right? Yeah. Well, this is another training ground that I had. See, remember going back to politics, all my celebrities were congressmen, senators, presidents. Here I am, a kid in his late teens and early 20s, and meets presidents, congressmen, senators, knows U.S. senators on a first-name basis and U.S. congressmen. So I got to meet all my heroes and celebrities when I was a kid and met multimillionaires, very powerful CEOs, asking them for money. And 
So I don't look at anybody that I talk to and say, oh, I don't get excited because I had, I experienced all that when I was younger. And I recognized early on as I spent time to have been to their home, spent time with them, had dinner with them. These are people just like you and me. There's nothing special about that person that's, you know, that you see speaking in the chamber of the U.S. Senate. There's no, they're no more different than I am. Yeah. So that gave me the ability to approach somebody like John DeLynn and, and look past who the, the persona or the celebrity or what people perceive him as, but look at him as like, dude, you're just a bro like me. That's why if you watch the interview I did with John or all of my interviews, there's a comfort level there, dude. Yeah. Like we, there's no, like, it's just like him and I having a conversation back and forth. There's very, yeah. A couple of dudes just, yeah. And it just, it, it, that's just, you can't fake that. Yeah. You know, that's a real genuine conversation about two people who genuinely care and respect each other. And there aren't a whole lot of people out there that have that kind of relationship with John, you know? And and so that that's what makes it different. That's why I'm able to see the side of John that other, I've met Margie uh, just briefly. Um, uh, and uh, I've been by his house just briefly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and I go out to lunch and dinner with him. So, yeah, I feel like we're just, we're buds. Like, he's the kind of guy, next time I go to Utah, hey, I'm in town, let's, let's get together for dinner. And I'm like, okay, you know? And and that's enough. Well, I could keep going on, but I last fall that that lunch that I had with John Lynn, it was completely unplanned. I was going to go back to Rod Meldrum's firm foundation conference that Saturday, and my drive, my transportation situation changed, so I wasn't able to get out to that thing as at then. So I I went to John Lynn and I just kind of reached out to him. On a Saturday morning, he said, hey, I'm, I'm in town. I haven't heard from you. Because, again, you don't hear from back from John every time you come. To, I'm in town, and, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I'm sorry we won't be able to see you this time. But next time I'm in Utah, I'd like to see you. Within five minutes, he's messaging me. We got to do lunch. We got to do lunch now. Now, now. So within an hour, I'm sitting in front of him having lunch. So it's like that wasn't planned either. And none of the, I mean, dude, I, I literally, I have not planned any of this. I mean, when I went up to, did a cold call with Richard Bushman, you know, nobody knows who I am. You know, and this is the other thing too. Like, so these are my this is my original business card. I still have this one. This is my business card, right? And I have uh, this bookshelf. This is a picture from my bookshelf. Mm. And Claudia Bushman's looking at the books on the shelf, and she says, "Look, Richard, he's got two of your books on that shelf." <laughs> <laughs> Was that what closed the deal? Maybe. Well, Richard Bushman did tell me. He said, "You know, I I like the idea of reaching out to evangelicals and outsiders." So I think he would have come on, but I do think, well, maybe that was like. The one thing that tied it in was maybe Claudia seeing the books and pointing it out to her husband. Maybe that's that little thing, that little decision to take that picture. That all these things to me, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it, dude. It just seems like it all falls into place in a way that it just it always falls right into my lap. Like, yeah, it's crazy. That's so awesome. And I liked what you shared um, about John. Uh, in my sort of observation, obviously, I don't know him personally, but I've listened to so many hours of his podcast. And I always like to give people the benefit of the doubt and not judge people. Uh, but to me, he comes across like somebody who, you know, he, he's had his issues and concerns and, um, you know, with, with the church, you know, he, he started podcasts to try to help people to be more transparent about the issues, the history that's helped LGBT people, um, you know, those who are in mixed faith marriages and to provide a community after Mormonism. Yeah, and even if you you disagree with them, even even if you think that his interpretation of church history is too critical, um, 
I still think that he's devoted to, to his cause, uh, that he wants to provide informed consent and help build that community. And you would know better than me, but it seems like he's sincere and his, his heart's in the right place. But of course, yeah. he can get angry at, at times. We're, we're all human. None yeah, of us uh, are perfect. Um, yeah, he gets passionate. I mean, he he literally he he'll admit to you that he often shoots himself in the foot. Yeah, that he he's burned bridges he probably shouldn't have because of stuff he said in this program. He he owns a lot of this too. It's he doesn't point fingers at people. He I don't think he's ever pointed fingers at anyone that in any conversation I've had. He always he always takes it back to himself about what he could have done differently. I should have done this. You know, he's always he's always thinking like a lot of the stuff that's happened to him has has been, you know, he kind of kind of owns some of that too. You know, on the personal level, where the, maybe he has personal conflicts with people, he recognizes that maybe he could have handled it differently. So he's introspective in that way too. That's awesome. Um, any any final thoughts on um, final thoughts on Joseph Smith, the Church, the Book of Mormon, and anything else about your faith in closing? Well, I just, I just think, first of all, this is really cool that I was able to come on your program today. Yeah, it's been awesome. And uh, I, I told you, let's just let this thing breathe. We'll do like a nice forty-five minute conversation of mine, introduce you to my my uh, base, and then I'll let them get to know me a little better if they're interested. Like it, and I think you might get a half dozen views out of this video, so that's a good start for a new channel. <laughs> but um, it's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, but uh, my thoughts on Justin. Well, you know, in one sense, what what is it? The names of my Mormon stories interviews. Uh, what an evangelical loves about Mormonism. How Mormonism saved an evangelical's life. Uh, I talk about how Joseph and I would have been friends, if not frenemies. Uh, you know uh, that I have a real deep connection to him. That I like the Book of Mormon. I love the story of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I love that the fact that the Book of Mormon as straightforward as somebody wants to say there was just some illiterate farm boy wrote this book. That's um, but he was he was not as illiterate as people think he was. He did have some, you know, we know that. Mm -hmm. He had some book learning, you know, he did. But to go after this text for 200 years and research it and do textual analysis, and still we are finding things in the text that we didn't see before. There's a complexity to the book that I find fascinating. Yeah. I find the story of Freemasonry and Mormonism to be very interesting. You know, that infinite... Method infinite. I find the fact that Joseph that it was a Pentecostal who found that the anti-Nephi-Lehi story is at the exact textual center of the Book of Mormon, which to a textual critic is highly important. And what's interesting is that here is a book about war, but at the very center of the text, it's a story about burying one's weapons and 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 being peacemakers. Right. At the very center of this war document, if you call it. You know, so I find I find it interesting that Pentecostal doctrine is found in there that didn't exist until like 80, 90 years later. I find it interesting that so many people can come with a different idea of how this thing was done. I think the latest one, the Visions in the Searstone book, is fascinating because it gives us another aspect of how it could have been done. But I also honored the Book of Mormon because, like as John Hamer pointed out in one of my interviews, and I brought it up on Mormon Stories, is that Christians should be grateful for the Book of Mormon because most of your second great awakening sermons that were given were never written down. They were off the cuff and they were just they were they weren't planned and they didn't have notes. He said, You have 
19th century Second Great Awakening sermons in the Book of Mormon. What a valuable document that is, if you want to look at it from a naturalistic explanation. What were they hearing? Go to King Benjamin. Hear what King Benjamin said. That's what they were hearing, the same spirit. Whether it's the same spirit that King Benjamin had as those Second Great Awakenings, or he was getting the influences, I don't really care. I can go either way. I don't care. I mean, I mean, more. I'm going to be more inclined to be naturalistic, but I don't care because that's interesting. There's 19th century Christianity in the book, sermons in the Book of Mormon that we never thought would be there. Then they're in there. So now we know what it's like to be at one of those Methodist revivals, man. Wow. We also know what it's like to be there to listen to King Benjamin. We also know what it's like to hear a Methodist exhorter in the 1820s. Well, that's cool stuff, dude. Whether Joseph is doing it through his own filter as a translator. Whatever, I don't care. I'm just saying this is a historically important book. It's a thoroughly Christian book. It, it's a book that Christians should use, embrace as a tool of being able to get to know your Mormon neighbors that maybe you want to witness to or talk to or get to know better. Read the Book of Mormon. Study the theology of the Book of Mormon. Uh, look at the Jesus of the Book of Mormon. I do quibble with a few things. I do. I definitely do. I don't. I do, when he comes back to the New World and reigns destruction, that seems quite different than the Prince of Peace, you know. <laughs> but I have a theory for that one too. But either way, there's enough Christianity in the Book of Mormon that one should engage it that way and look at this is a Christian book. Like, if you want to say it's fiction, fine. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, and there are many, many Christians who believe the book Pilgrim's Progress was inspired, inspired fiction. But actually, John Bunyan claims that when he wrote the book, he was given a vision, and he wrote it down. So it has a supernatural origin as well. And so many Christians throughout the centuries have considered Pilgrim's Progress to be a Pilgrim's Progress to be an inspired work. Well, I look at it this way. Well, a lot of Christians don't know, and I've had conversations with this before. They say, well, we're not supposed to add books to the Bible. Well, first of all, do you know the, that story? First of all, it's in the book of Revelation. There's still, and it says, don't add or, you know, Add or subtract anything from this, all the all the curses and blessings of this book. You know, I mean basically you're you're it's a an anthema. Don't take add or take anything out of this book. Well, a lot of Christians think book of Revelation, end of the Bible. Oh, let's talk about the whole Bible. First of all, Revelation was was what there was scripture that was written after the book of Revelation. Okay, so we have that. So we don't know. Like the book, the book of Revelation wasn't the final say. It just happened to be at the end of the book, right? So, and it almost, I think a lot of Christians look at the book of Revelation. They think, oh, this is an admonition. After you've read the whole book of the Bible, this is your warning. Don't take your ad or take anything out of it, right? Well, that's not what it was. And the most, and, and, and if anything, what's so fascinating is most of your scholars will tell you that is not even in the original transcript. That actually made its way from the margins for the translators as a, a rule to follow. Hey, make sure you copy everything right. Don't add or take anything out of this. Now, what happens with, with biblical scholarship is that you have these margins where there were there might be admonitions on the margins that scribes would write down as a reminder, like, hey, don't add or take anything here. It was like almost like a, and and then eventually that then that admonition actually made itself into the text. See, people don't realize that's what our, the scholarship is telling us. So it wasn't in the original book of Revelation, most likely, anyhow. I have to talk to Christopher Thomas, see what he thinks about that, because he's a Revelation thing. But he would acknowledge that that is definitely a, a, a legitimate scholarly argument against that verse. But then this is the other thing. Even if it is in the book of Revelation, I tell people, but it was just talking about this particular book, because it wasn't, there was still scripture that had to be wrote, wrote about. We don't, 
it wasn't the be all end all. It wasn't at the end of the book. It was and so I said before I knew about the whole margin thing, getting into the scripture. I thought, well, it was just talking about the book of Revelation. It wasn't talking about the Bible. Well, then why do why am I going on this long rant, right? Well, this is the issue. Okay, we have the Yohim Koma in John, which is the most. It's the Trinitarian formula given to us in in, in John, right? And it's about the only verse that's explicitly Trinitarian in the Bible. Okay. Well, when Erasmus was coming up with his uh, his scriptures, he was coming up with his translation. Um, it's pointed out to him that that particular that 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 verse in itself was not in the original manuscripts. It was not in the Greek manuscripts. So Erasmus Very goes and says, "Listen, if you can find a Greek transcript with that verse in it, I'll put it in." Well, guess what? Voila! Somebody comes up with a Greek transcript. He's like, "Okay, I'll put it in." We know that. There wasn't a, 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 we know that in the original Greek, in the original manuscripts, that that Trinitarian, the Yohim Koma formula was not in the original book. It was added just a few hundred years or a couple hundred years before the Book of Mormon. So now we have a verse in the Bible that functions as scripture to millions of Christians. That is their go-to verse to defend the Trinity. And it's, it's scripture. But it's only like 150, 200 years older than the Book of Mormon. Now we have a second book that comes out called the Book of Mormon that in the original 1830 edition is actually more Trinitarian than the original manuscript of the New Testament. So if you're a Trinitarian Christian, what the what do you have a problem with with the Book of Mormon? It gives it's it's more Trinitarian than our our own New Testament is. You know, was it changed? Did they change it around a little bit? Yeah, in, in later editions, yeah. But well, I'm going with the source text, man, the originals. Well, you always go to the original document. That's what Christopher Thomas says. That's what all biblical scholars go. They don't go by the later stuff that was added. They go to the source material. The original source material of the Book of Mormon was much more Trinitarian than the actual Bible was. Even even if they argue, well, it was a type of modulism, fine. It's still Trin more Trinitarian than the New Testament. So, like, nobody thinks like this. Nobody talks like this. But I'm like... I have a pro-Trinitarian book that talks about Jesus. It, it, it's centered around Jesus. The entire book is building up to Jesus. We have G we have Christians existing before Jesus exists because they were even they were even more of a Christian society than we've ever been. They were we have a, Christ, a thoroughly Christianized Old Testament world, right? We have people living in the Old Covenant that are Christians. So now we have a Christianized type of Judaism. It's it's not just speculated about in the Old Testament. No, we have Old Testament era scripture that's Christian. Now we have Jesus come into the picture, and we have a tr pro-Trinitarian book, and these Christians are saying this thing's of the devil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense? It testifies of Christ. It invites yep. people to believe in him, to do good, you know, follow his gospel. Yeah, it's all the devil. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all the devil. I'm like, no, no, if you're if you're a charismatic and a Pentecostal of of a, a, and you walk into that church of Jesus Christ service, or if you walk in the April 6, 1830 service, you'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah, these are Christians. Well, I want to go back to the original source. See, to me, the most authentic type of Christianity, or the if you want to get closest to I want to meet the disciples. I want to talk to the apostles. I want to talk to the disciples. I want to talk to Jesus. I want to get right to the source. I want to get right to the source of the Church, Jesus, the Church of Christ, later Church of yeah. Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. I want to engage that first church service. I want to engage that first scripture. 
that first edition, to me, that's that's off in one sense, that is the most authentic type of Mormonism that you can have. It's in its purest form. Because it's 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 it hasn't been it hasn't been messed around with yet much. It's it's really like it it's kind of pristine, a church verse on the scene, a Bible, a scripture verse on the scene, and that's where I want to be right there. Just like I want to be right with the disciples with Jesus. I want to be right there at the beginning. I love it. Awesome. Stephen, this has been one heck of an interview. I have absolutely loved just hearing more about your story, your faith journey, your podcast. I personally find this really interesting and I think a really thoughtful and uh, uplifting and edifying conversation and, and discussion. And um, I've got so much respect uh, and admiration for you, uh, for your faith, for the person you are, your, your big heart, and that you're trying to create more uh, inclusion, more respect, more dialogue, uh, more love, less contention and division among those in the different uh, communities, either Mormon or Christian. Um, and you're just a really genuine, uh, sweet, kind, caring individual. So I've loved having you come on to, to my show. Uh, check out his YouTube channel, Mormon Book Reviews. He's also got uh, on audio version podcast uh, i'll put some links in the description if you want to watch his mormon stories interview with john delin it's it's epic and uh subscribe to his channel he's got great content support him and the great work that he's doing uh and if you've enjoyed this episode please give it a thumbs up please like and share and subscribe to my channel mormonism with the murph if you care to donate you can to my paypal stephen.murphy 1996 at outlook.com. I appreciate all the support I can get, but at least uh, like, share, and subscribe to this channel. And hopefully, we'll have more uh, talks and maybe discussions in the future, Stephen. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I really wish you Godspeed. I really think that you are really a cool dude. Um, I, I don't want to sound like, well, I wouldn't normally take four hours or anything. You know, <laughs> I think we've done like almost six. Six hours of taping, five, six yeah. hours of taping today between my channel and yours. So don't forget to check out my uh, interview with the Murph uh, as well. Just kind of an introduction. Um, and he tells a little bit about himself. So you want to get to know your guy a little better, come flip on over to my channel. But yeah, you're a very thoughtful person. Um, I, I've listened to some of your interviews. I, I love the people that you're booking. I love that you're on this journey. Yeah. And you're still learning. And hopefully you'll, you'll be learning for the rest of our lives and going into eternity, just a continuous yeah. learning curve of going on and on and growing. Um, and so I want to honor you, uh, that the work that you do, uh, not only your work, but you as a person, uh, I think you're a good man. I think you, you have the right, uh, you're very earnest. I think you have the right spirit, the right heart about you. I think that it's really cool that you've also told your story because you've, you've, you've had your struggles. You want to, you want the truth, man. You want to grapple with the truth. You like I said before, I don't want an easy faith. I want a hard faith. Yeah. I don't want a superficial faith. I want a deep faith. And I think that's what you're heading to. So, man, I love you so much. And I think you're awesome. And thank you today for having me on the program. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching. Take Bye. Care.